Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything we know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, 55 episodes in, is Michael. Hail, good sire. Uh, uh, hey, gosh, uh. Tis I, Michael the Bard. Oh, Michael the Bard. Can't you oh, tell yes, from my I excellent loot? Yeah, I see your excellent loot. I see your jangly shoes. I see mm-hmm. your uh, <laughs> lime prancing. green pantaloons. I see your uh, rosy red cheeks adorned <laughs> with the color rouge. I see it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I hate that. <laughs> Just like, like I wouldn't bite realize. Of the satire. <laughs> oh, Sting no. too oh. closely for you. Uh, yeah, you know what? I think I think I've been gotten by the immortal power of the Harlequin of uh, <laughs> he who would spit in the face of the uh, you know the royal desire, the the hegemon, the power that be. Um, hey, do you remember this part of the book? Uh, I banished the uh, Bard Michael. Whoa, whoa. Uh, okay. You remember the part of this book where they talk about how in the late 60s at the early Renaissance fairs, they uh, hired people to be beggars who would grab onto people's legs and not let go? <laughs> yes. Do you know, want to know what I thought about during that part? Uh, sure. Uh, the first Assassin's Creed game <laughs> where, where they had the specific like NPCs <laughs> yeah. in the towns who were like, I don't know exactly what the term used for them in mm-hmm. like the games materials were, but they were clearly like these were the, the beggars who were also like uh, uh, mentally unwell or something. And yeah, they were they're just, like mad men. Right. You know, is what the game would call them. Yeah. Right. And so they would just like run out of the crowd and like push you down. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they would just run into you. <laughs> so that like I thought of that and I was like, man, that's something the the popular imaginary right of the medieval period is that there were just dudes on the street who would harass you for like money or to push you into the mud to make sure that you like missed your jump. Because uh, I assume that was also still going on in the medieval period. That's just right. what it was like. That was historical accuracy. Yeah. People who are annoying. Uh huh. <laughs> You know, not dangerous or, you know, uh, uh, not impressing their lives upon you, really. Just an inconvenience. Mm -hmm. It really is a 1960s imaginary of what the past might be like. (laughs) Here we are in the golden age of American imperialist expansion. What if people in the past were annoying? (laughs) We read uh, Well Met this month. Renaissance fairs and the American counterculture in the show. We do a thing, you know, where we do not necessarily in the sequence, but in a general round robin format. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do classics, you know, these these books that kind of everyone reads within the field of game studies and uh, which we think are worth going back to and checking out and talking about and contextualizing a little bit. Uh, these seem to be our most rankling episodes. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, they they shake the foundations of the field to its core. Ooh, <laughs> this is my this is my medieval character, the the wizard who thinks he's doing something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not doing anything, you know. Ooh, we're ooh, we're doing it. Ooh, we're changing <laughs> the field. Ooh, it's a podcast, y'all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other thing, uh, so so we do canon, you know, kind of quote unquote canonical books, right? Classics in the field. 
And then we do uh, books that are newer that we've read or that we want to read that we think might be really interesting to put in context with that. So we kind of bounce back and forth um, uh, between those things. But then we have a sacred third category, you know, some sort of secret third thing <laughs> that are part of these these categories. Uh, that's the uh, the wild card. Not not George R. R. Martin's wild cards. No. Mm-mm. Just a while, just uh, books we think might be interesting to think of in terms of game studies or to put in conversation with game studies uh, to see what might shake out. You know, we've done books like The Ignorant Schoolmaster, the Ron Sierra book, um, and some other ones that I'm blanking on. Michael, can you remember any of the other wild cards? I mean, I think Beyond a Boundary was kind of a wild card when we did that. Yeah, it might have been. I don't remember how we contextualize it, but yeah, that that you know, it's that kind of thing of a book that is not often thought of mm-hmm. uh, in terms of of game studies. I think the uh, biggest one uh, for this particular episode, or sort of the closest parallel, would probably be Michael Saylor's "As If." Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm trying to look for for other ones that we have done there. That that's the most recent one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is is as if. So it's been almost almost a year ago now, um, and uh, so yeah. We're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually didn't do a wild card for a pretty long time in there. <laughs> uh, so maybe we... Oh, surrealism at play uh, is probably... Yeah. Even though it does have play in the title, uh, by putting it really directly in conversation with game studies is probably one of those. Um, and so, yeah. we. Uh, this is a wild card. This is just a straight-up book about Renaissance festivals mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and Ren fairs and all the different synony- synonymous or pseudo-synonymous terms in between, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into it specifically, um, but we're just going to talk about the book and talk about it in a, in a kind of a general sense here. There's no game studies theoretical apparatus to put into conversation here. So we're going to talk, you know, there, it's not like we can read the intro to this book and be like, well, it's referencing Galloway, right? Or it's you know <laughs> talking about Brenda Laurel because that's not what's happening. Although there is Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. Which, oddly enough, has come up in Just King Things a few times. The bonus odes over there. So, you know, the range touch of verse continues to expand and grow. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so this is just an interesting book that we had on a list. I think someone might have suggested it to us at some point. I think so, Uh, yeah. Yeah, and we thought it would be interesting to do. Um, And so here we are. Uh, It's written by Rachel Lee Rubin. Um, Michael, do you know anything about Rachel Lee Rubin? Yes, Rubin is a professor of American studies at UMass Boston. Uh, she has a PhD in American studies and Slavic languages and literatures from Yale University. Uh, and according to her faculty page on the UMass Boston website, <clears throat> um, her primary interests are in, within American studies uh, are American popular music and uh, ethnic literature and kind of the, the growth of uh, ethnic identity and ethnic literature. Uh, her first book, uh, published in 2000 through the University of Illinois Press, was Jewish Gangsters of Modern Literature. Um, and uh, then she uh, co-wrote, it looks like, or possibly co-edited a book uh, with Jeffrey Melnick uh, in 2006 called Immigration in American Popular Culture. And there's a whole bunch of other books that she uh, either co-edited or contributed to uh, that I am not mentioning here. Uh, but uh, again, a good deal of them uh, have to do with uh, American ideas of ethnicity and the growth of like ethnic literatures and identities. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's kind of her background. And in in, in that scope, uh, you know, this book, the Renfair book is kind of 
her, her own little wild card. Although, you know, uh, thinking backward a little bit, you can see how you get from uh, looking at the, the things that she's been trained to study uh, to looking at what's going on in Renaissance fairs. Oh, 100%. Once I looked at that faculty page and saw the other stuff, I went, oh, a lot of this book kind of clicks into place in a way that, <laughs> that read in the abstract, it kind of didn't for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it does look like this uh, Immigration and American Popular Culture book is kind of like an intro to the field. So mm -hmm. it is a co-written book. Um, and uh, it's got chapters such as uh, Los Angeles, 1943, Zoot Suit Style, Immigrant Politics. Uh, chapter six is cyberspace and Y2K, giant robots, Asian punks. So it's kind of a looking at the 20th century, it looks like for the most part, and kind of understanding how major immigration movements kind of change popular culture. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Might be interesting. Check out. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of that shows up in this book um, about Renaissance fairs. Uh, we Do we have anything we want to say about it up top? Um, I mean, I guess one thing I want to say is like it. In some places, it's a straight history, mm -hmm. and in other places, it is a micro history of a particular media or art form that shows up at Ren Fairs. I, I, there was not a single part of this book that I do, did not find fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, like just in terms of like, wow, that's interesting. What's going on here? Um, but also, I would say in a general sense, like I didn't find a whole lot that I was like, wow, this gives me a new tool to work mm -hmm. with. You know, it, it's it's a lot of qualitative interviews that are truly fascinating. Like, you know, sometimes when you say something like, I don't have a lot of tools to develop from it, you know, in some parts of academia, that's like, you know, a death blow, right? <laughs> right. It's like, well, if you can't go and use this to do something, what's it what's it worth? And that's not what I'm saying. Um, but, uh, you know, just the if you're interested in the history of any of the things we're about to talk about, I promise this book goes like 10 times deeper than we're going to on any of these things. Um, and if if you ask me, like, what is the major output of the book? You know, like, uh, if the things you're interested in are historical things and historical reconstructions, and then all these really interesting interviews that Ruben did with the people who were involved, that this book is for you. It is a great history of Renaissance fairs mm -hmm. in the United States and of the major players, especially coming out of the late '60s, early '70s. Mm -hmm. um, if you're looking for a book that's like a broad theory of why people go to Renaissance fairs, there's some of that in here, right? You're, if you're looking for like some sort of psychological or anthropological analysis, there's a little bit of that here, but it's mostly in the interviews. You know, mm -hmm. it's mostly people talking about their experience. There's no meta theory here about like, why do people dress up like, you know, medieval characters? Uh, there's no real substantial reckoning with like, well, well, what is the the politics of doing that kind mm -hmm. of historical, you know, reenactment of that, right? In the way that um, I think in game studies, quite often we see that, you know, um, what what is the value for people who go and reenact the Civil War, right? What are the ideological components of that? I think that's something that kind of shows up, um, particularly in like the LARP, you know, part mm -hmm. of game studies. So that's not really in this book. I mean, you know, it it pitches itself it's you know the subtitle is renaissance fairs and the american counterculture and that's what it's about mm -hmm. it is about the moves that happen in the 60s up to the present and how renaissance fairs are a critical part of that so that's maybe the thing i wanted to say up top mm -hmm. yeah the way i would put that is um uh i think uh, if you if you like Renaissance fairs or are interested in Renaissance fairs, you will be fascinated by this book, like, you know, in, in kind mm -hmm. of just the, the basic sense. If, if that's a thing that you're into, I think you're going to find a lot of stuff here that's really useful. Um, 
as you say, Cameron, uh, there's not a lot of like big theorizing that you can necessarily like pull out of here and go to other things with to do similar kinds of work. Although there are some like really interesting crossovers or resonances uh, with other fields that we, we will probably talk about. Um, uh, and that's because this is uh, uh, kind of two books happening at once. Um, I would say one is this kind of just history of the Renaissance fair. Like in general, like where, where did it come from? Where did the idea come from? How did it spread? How did it develop? And so on. You know, who was involved? Uh, how has it changed from one decade to the next? Uh, and then the other thing that's going on is what you called the micro history, uh, which is more like, what is the culture of the Renaissance fair? Like, who are the people that are there, who are working in it, who visit it, uh, who visit it, you know, frequently, um, the people who hate it, even we get a chapter on Renfair Antis, which we'll talk about, uh, mm -hmm. explicitly called Renfair Antis. Yes. Um, uh, so, uh, we, we have kind of like one, like, you know, big, just like history. Here's how these things happened and here's who did them. Um, and then beside that, here are people that I'm talking to today, uh, and because I guess of like the nature of the project, um, as you said, there's not a lot of like meta like theorization, right? They're, they're, this is a book that's really invested in letting the subjects that are being interviewed just kind of speak for themselves. Um, you know, there's a little bit of like editorializing or whatever, but it, in general, right? This is just a book that kind of like takes the people who are talking about this as they're at their word and then tries mm -hmm. to see where you can get from there. Um, and so uh, the experience of reading this book, at least for me, was like sitting down and starting a chapter and uh, feeling like I am just like whipping through an incredible amount of data about like uh, like there are there are like sections of chapters in this book that uh, could be in a different book that approached the topic of the Ren Fair from a different perspective or from a different field, uh, would be entire chapters unto themselves. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. It, and actually, some chapters feel that way. Some chapters in this book have a pretty clean break in them, and sometimes more than one break where you think, oh, this could have been its own chapter. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, this could have been its own thing. I mean, the first chapter of this book is like 70 pages long. Yes. I mean, they, they these are historians pages. I, you know, I, I get the sense looking at uh, Ruben's kind of work, right, that, you know, an American studies uh, uh, degree, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the Slavic language languages and literatures as well. But, you know, American studies has this kind of heavy uh, input from history as a field is mm -hmm. heavy input in English you know, kind of comparable, but not equivalent to, obviously, because they are different, but to comp lit, right? Mm -hmm. They they speak a lot of the same languages, although I do associate American studies with being much more like on the history side. Um, and you can feel that. Uh, you, you feel the method here being we have to talk to people to reconstruct the history. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, you're. I, yes, there are several chapters in here where I was like, "Oh, we're we're just shifting gears here, and now we are getting like the 15 page deep dive on the, these three people or whatever." Right. Right. 
Um, yes. So absolutely. I, I had the same feeling. Right. So and that's uh, uh, again, like I'm not like critiquing the book. This is not like failures yeah. of it. I'm, I'm saying that uh, uh, the, I think the person who is going to get the most out of this is a person who wants to know more about Ren Fairs and especially someone who maybe already knows something about Ren Fairs, but like wants to really get all of this history uh, because, you know, there there are ideas or sort of like uh, uh, consonances with various other kind of cultural movements that are useful for drilling down on. Uh, and uh, we will again talk about them. Um, but like by and large, this book is just almost like a compendium of just uh, the other thing that I thought. Right. The other way that you could sort of pitch the thesis of this book is that uh, uh, the Ren Fair made this world. Yeah, well, yeah. So right. well, uh, let's just go into the introduction because that is the claim, right. right? Like that that is actually the thing. So the introduction is called Fairgrounds, and it's setting the 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 kind of stakes of what's up with Ren Fairs in a general sense. If you don't know what they are, Michael, what, if people don't know what a Renaissance festival is mm-hmm. uh, or, or a Ren Fair, what what are they? Uh, so a Renaissance festival. Um, or a Ren Fair, a Renaissance Fair, as we both learned in reading this book, is in fact a copyrighted term. So this is why the Pleasure Fair. Mm-hmm. So this but is Renaissance Fair, yeah, yeah. So this is why most of the time, uh, unless you are in like Northern California, uh, the Renaissance Fair you go to is going to be called a Renaissance Festival or have like just some other name entirely, uh, King Richard's Fair, for ex- for example. Mm-hmm. Um, medieval fair mm-hmm. me- medieval festival uh fantasy festival <laughs> like, like there's a there's a section here where there's a bunch of synonyms and some of them are very funny mm-hmm. uh so what this is is that uh again if you're not familiar for uh, whatever reason um on a patch of land a fairground like an actual fairground a bunch of people are going to set up some booths uh you know artisans crafters and traders uh and they will dress in costume as medieval artisans uh they will sell their wares but there will also be performers and actors uh who go about the fair uh you know there will be stages where people perform but there will also be uh what are called street performers people who kind of like walk around and mingle with the crowd with the guests um and everyone is in costume everyone uh in this also like varies right from this is a thing that the book gets into as well that um Different uh, festivals have kind of like different strictures on like how in character are you supposed to be from moment to moment when you're working for them? What does in character even mean? Right. How how hard do you have to commit to the bit of using ye old middle English? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the stereotype of the Renaissance Fair, right, is uh, what we did here at the beginning with uh, Michael the Bard, right? Someone in in their finery and their frippery coming out in kind of a, a, a tortured uh, a performative mode, um, interacting with someone who is just like you know there to eat a giant turkey leg and uh, you know look at some cool I don't know iron mongery or something. Uh-huh. Uh so uh that that's kind of the idea of a of a Renaissance fair. Uh the other important thing is that there are people who go to Renaissance fairs who are called platrons, a uh hybridization of patron and player. Uh these are people who are not employed by the fair, uh but who will come in costume or as it is called in fair speak garb. Um they will have characters that they perform or that they play. They will uh you know uh uh do whatever the the rules are for uh the language uh uh how you're supposed to speak 
So there's a real like that there are there is like the fair is a kind of like actual entity uh, very often as Ruben gets into these days, like a corporately owned entity um, that has all of these vendors who have you know paid their fees, done all their paperwork and they can like set up shop and, and hawk their stuff as well as these performers who have done the same. Um, there are then also like people who are coming to the fair as guests, but who are also like invested in the overall fantasy of what the fair is, which is like, we are pretending for these four weekends in, in September or whatever, um, that this is like an open air medieval market, right? Like it's, it's, a uh, not quite a LARP, although, uh, there are like combat reenactments, right? Jousting and things like that happen. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, uh, the, the other way of thinking about this that might be um, more accessible to, to some of our listeners. Um, and this was a, you know, I've never been to a Renaissance fair. I'll be, I'll say this up top, but in reading this book, it was striking to me, incredibly striking how much it sounds like being at a Renaissance fair is like being at an anime convention at a campground. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I I find all of these uh, sorts of events. I've talked about my experience with cosplay before, mm-hmm. which is what, that I find it deeply uncomfortable. Like I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I find everything involved with uh, Renaissance fairs to be similarly uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me. Um, the uh, and, but and similar same same deal with the anime <laughs> con or the fantasy con or whatever, right? You know. Um, I lived in Atlanta for a number of years, uh, and Dragon Con is a huge part of like the nerd culture there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's this big unifying event to the extent that I would say it's very similar to a Ren Fair. Um, and that the con culture there is very well defined and how you interact with it. And, you know, uh, certainly I, I, I did not have this level of commitment, but knowing quite a few people who have a level of commitment of like, I think it goes on for five days and, you know, they have a different costume every day. Um, I was at a university that was like basically co-located with Dragon Con. You know, we we were, I don't know, a few blocks away, not very many blocks away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was always a quite um, raucous first week of classes <laughs> because <laughs> those things uh, ten- tended to uh, uh, overlap Dragon mm-hmm. Con. So anyway, that's all to say, I you know, I've got some... Um, I, I have uh, nodes of interaction across them, and but I did have the same experience when I was... Um, when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, you could write a very similar book about PAX, for uh-huh. example. Yes. Um, and and really, this book would be a really good uh, model for that, you know, if you wanted to do that in, in terms of like schematics, right? Like, how do you approach a thing that is so big and wide and difficult to kind of grasp as a phenomenon and which is located in lots of different places and some of which are not accessible anymore? You know, there, there was a... Uh, you know, whatever, Pack South, and now there isn't a Pack South, I think, right? Mm-hmm. The one in Texas. Um, and, uh, but, you know, uh, Ruben does a really good job of reconstructing fairs that did exist that had certain ethics to them that don't anymore and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I, yeah, I had the exact same feeling. I was like, oh, yeah, that's basically an anime con. <laughs> yeah. And, and when uh, I say <laughs> that, I mean that in, in all the ways possible, right up into the fact yeah. that, like, you know, uh, after the con weekend, this is when all the stories start coming about coming out about, like, you know, who went to whose uh, room in the night. Right. Like who was getting up to sexy shenanigans or who was like getting high and where like 
all of this stuff is like fundamental to the Renaissance fair experience as well. It's it's truly oh, wild. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you know, I've literally had the conversation. It's a conversation that appears several times in this book. It actually gets its own subchapter. Um, but the reason I go slash the reason I work at for free or volunteer at the Ren Fair is to go to the parties afterward. Mm-hmm. I've literally had that conversation with a PAX attendee, mm-hmm. like actually had that that conversation, um, uh, you know, that after hours is the reason you go, um, you know. So, yeah, it's an extremely... Uh, I mean, one comes from the other, you know, mm-hmm. the 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 thing that's also missing here. And we'll we'll talk about this as we go through. Right. But the thing that predates the Renaissance Festival is the science fiction convention. Yes. Uh, the science science fiction conventions were happening all the way back in the 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, I've read a couple books on the history of that. I, I read a really great I always forget the title of it, but it is on. Uh, the Internet Archive, and so maybe I'll I'll post it in the Discord or something or on Twitter um, later. But uh, I read a book from like 1960 that was a critical history of science fiction conventions, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- there there had been enough at that point that you could write a critical history of it. And so while I was reading this book, I was thinking a lot about that and how how that and especially the different coastal um relationships there you know that on the east coast there was a certain type of person and certain type of decorum that was expected at a science fiction convention and on the west coast out that was very different Mm -hmm. uh even even through the 40s and 50s um and like these conventions you know quote quote unquote right like some i think the the earliest ones you know they i mean the earliest ones are topping out at 20-ish people but even the big ones are at like 50-ish you know they're, mm-hmm. they're very small they, all of them are smaller than the first Ren, Ren Fair for sure mm-hmm. but I was thinking about that a lot that there are these kind of precursors within other kind of what I would call fandom communities um, or not what I would but what many people would call fandom communities <laughs> and something like a PAX or something about an, like an anime expo right they are the the newest um, emanation of that right but it's it's a form that goes back quite a long way and I guess that's part of the thing too is like this the Renaissance Fair is mimicking a, a form that it believes that it is recreating from the 1500s or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and weirdly enough, we are now reading another book that goes back to Michael Lutz's expertise. So why don't we talk about the very first line of the very first page, <laughs> which you told me I, 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 I'm going to I'm going to uh, tell the story for you. I said this is like a, a few weeks ago. and I said, hey, have you started reading that book yet? And you said, well, I read the first sentence and I had to put the book down for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, what could that be? And then I looked it up and, and had a big laugh. So mm-hmm. uh, by all means, tell us what, how's this book begin? The first sentence of the introduction is, quote, this is our ethnic background, William Shakespeare tells me, gesturing at a Southern California fairground filled with visitors and workers. And specifically what I said to you is that this is like a roundhouse kick delivered to the face for me specifically, (laughs) just like without any context. Right. Like I I just like I had to like set the book down. I was like, I don't know where this is going to go. Like, I don't want to be uncharitable, but like I just need to sit with like (laughs) this is the opening salvo Uh, like Shakespeare showing up, of course. Right. Uh, There like Shakespeare shows up multiple points in this book in various ways and things that are that are interesting. Um, But then like this is our ethnic uh, uh, background being the thing that the the guy performing Shakespeare, he's this um, 
uh like fair uh like longtime fair performer uh mm-hmm. whose name is i think david springhorn uh we get him he shows up later he also shows up at the end when there's like a, a funeral scene for the one of the people who founded the fair um mm-hmm. uh the uh <laughs> The reason I just had to like uh, sit with that for a moment and the is because, uh, you know, the coming out of Shakespeare studies specifically um, uh, and right now, right in in 2023, but of course, over the past three years, especially, but also, you know, for the entire maybe I don't know, the entire time I've been in the discipline, certainly um, there have been discussions about like, you know, well, who is like who gets to count Shakespeare as part of their ethnic background, right? Like uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. the the conversations that are being had uh, right now, particularly, have to do with um, uh, like what are what is kind of like the what is the weight that Shakespeare is made to bear, not only within the curriculum, but like within kind of the identity politics of the academy, right? Uh, who, what, who, which are, who are the scholars who study and work with Shakespeare who get to count Shakespeare as like basically, you know, being a part of their side or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and their heritage, the, the thing that they have historical right to that kind of thing. Right. right? And um, obviously like the, the big question here is one of, of like race, uh, not just ethnicity, but of race. Um, uh, and this book is not like intentionally running into that conversation at all. Uh, no. it just happens to use, uh, certain formulations that for me, like, you know, just immediately shunt me into those, uh, ways of thinking, right? Like, yeah, what does yeah. it mean? Well, I, I, oh, I think we didn't say at the beginning. I just, just want to clarify. I don't think we said at the beginning, but this did come out in 2012. I think I missed saying the thing. And so oh, yes. those conversations about kind of, uh, race and it's what's happening in medievalism specifically as a field. And if you're curious about getting the deep dive on this, there's lots of places where you can go to read this at this point it might be the most um i don't know important conversation in your field right now tell me if if that's off base but it feels like from the outside that's the major uh defining conversation right now uh particularly in relationship to blackness in the medieval period um in, in the locations in europe and in the uk where uh, uh quote unquote modernism emerges right mm-hmm. um what is the racial element of that and who gets to claim it you know we're we're uh uh referencing that but maybe people who aren't plugged in you know just to, to make that very clear that's that's a dominant conversation that has been going on and continues to go on and that conversation at least as far as i'm aware kicked off maybe a couple years after this book comes out which mm-hmm. is not to say like oh the book doesn't isn't responsible to it but it it, it if this book had come out in 2017, 2018, one feels like that would be a defining part of the book itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels unavoidable, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, in this moment. And uh, again, tell me if any of that's off base. I'm not part of your field, but, I, you know, I read a little bit. No, I would I would say that that's uh, that's very much uh, correct. Um, yeah. And just like uh, a thing that I'm going to uh, say on air, maybe this can also go in the show notes, like a conversation from a couple years back um, on these topics that I think is pretty uh, useful and illustrative uh, from the website Public Books. Uh, it's called it's a, a sort of like. Yeah, as I said, conversation, kind of a dual interview to teach Shakespeare for survival, uh, which is David Sterling Brown and Arthur L. Little Jr., who are both Shakespearean scholars who do work on uh, uh, race in early modern literature and in Shakespeare specifically and how like Shakespeare functions as a racial signifier or has mm-hmm. been made to function in that way. Um, and it's uh, 
a very interesting, like, I, I like their work and uh, uh, I think it's a very, you know, illuminating conversation of the two of them talking to each other as black men uh, in the Academy. Uh, you know, like, what is Shakespeare for us? Who gets to have nostalgia for Shakespeare, right? And what is the mm-hmm, quality mm-hmm. of that nostalgia and the character of it? Um, so just, you know, something something to read if you want uh, kind of an easy, accessible way of uh, starting to think about these questions. Um mm-hmm. So this is the other thing is that like uh, clearly coming out of uh, Ruben's background, um, uh, she focuses quite a bit on the ways that uh, like the the fairgoers and this is part of this opening chapter and it's something that or the, yeah, the introduction and it shows up throughout uh, the way that fairgoers and particularly like people who work the fair circuit, the Rennies, as they call themselves or are called. Um, but also the patrons, uh, the people who really like to go and dress up and kind of be a part of the experience, um, all make uh, friendships and kind of, uh, uh, you know, found kinship networks, ex- uh, essentially, that are often in their own words being talked about in terms of like extended family or kind of like ethnicity. There's also occasionally people talking about, you know, like uh, there's a uh, I mean, there's an entire section of a chapter here that's all about uh basically suggesting that the Renaissance Fair is, uh, if not, you know, responsible, at least very strongly partly responsible for the revival of or like the birth of interest in like world music, quote unquote. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, let's uh, before we get like too deep into the thing here, because yeah. I like I feel like we're on ramping into a thing just to really state very quickly. So this claim about like. The fair has its own type of people that are produced, mm-hmm. and 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 Ruben is, you know, obviously within her background, interested in, in ethnicity. Mm-hmm. I would say that this argument probably drops out of the book as like as a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. But the framing of this is that the the ethos, you know, quite literally the set of shared values that uh, people who go to Renaissance festivals. Uh, have people who make that a major part of their life right that it defines them that it defines something like an ethnicity Mm -hmm. and i don't really know what to do with that i'm not an ethnic studies person um uh you know i i intersect with that occasionally in my work but that you know the uh the study of race the study of caste the study of ethnicity i think people outside of those fields often treat them as if they are the same but but within academia and i think within like what their ideas are you know about like how the world works are often quite different um and so you know i'm not someone who engages in ethnic studies i don't know how or you know heavily i don't know how um out you know i don't know how um uh accepted that kind of argument is versus how like wild it is mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying right yeah. like i i don't know what the stakes are to claiming that that this is a kind of coherent ethnicity of, of people um it, it certainly does work i can say and we'll talk about this later but i can say it certainly does work to grind out some other things that that i would say are about race or racialization that might be surfaced if ethnicity were not a primary term right. um Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and then the other thing, which is the thing you're kind of leaning into, and I, I wanted to kind of get this out there so that you can kind of on ramp into it. Cause I think that these are both connected in a way for you that I can't really articulate because <laughs> this is not my field specifically. Right. Um, but the other one is that, yeah, the, the, uh, the first Renaissance fairs happening in the late 1960s constitute a thing that births our world. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you made that joke earlier, but quite literally Ruben is, is making that claim, right? That, the political movements that are happening in the 1960s are unthinkable without understanding how they pass through the Renaissance Fair on the West Coast. 
Um, the um, cultural moves in both comedy, you know, uh, because the vaudeville revival, she says, mm-hmm. is here. Um, and then world music, quote unquote, world music, which really comes into prominence, you know, a couple of decades later, it's a slow building thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, anyone who's ever, uh, watched TV late at night to see compilation albums has seen the power of world music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you were say alive in 1999 or something, uh-huh. uh, millennials know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and, and then there's a bunch of other things too, but basically the claim that Ruben is making is that the people that go to Ren fairs are their own kind of unique thing going on and that the Ren fair is a central location for the development of American culture coming out of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's ignored. But if you look in every place, if you look in histories of all kinds of different arts movements, including the like handcrafted movement, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she's not saying this, but the implicit claim is that if you go make buy a handmade piece of cl- uh, of clothing on Etsy today, that would not exist without what was happening on the West Coast around Renaissance fairs and the kind of jump starting that happened around the handmaking of clothing. Now, that might be a pretty big claim. Mm-hmm. I can't test it. I'm not a historian of this kind of thing. But that is the the both explicit in some places and then certainly implicit in a lot of places claim being made here. So mm-hmm. uh, that that's what the intro is about here. The, the people constitute their own thing. And then the Renaissance fair is this kind of accelerator that pushes a lot of things that become dominant in American culture over the next 50 years mm-hmm. out. So those are the two big claims. I just wanted to say that so that you could like play that out in the examples because I know you have some good ones. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and just sort of the the second like smaller thing that, that sits mm-hmm, under mm-hmm. some of the stuff that you just said. Uh, the other important thing for Ruben um, for this whole book and for the argument is that the accelerator has a political orientation, right? The Ren Faire right. comes out of you know, gesturing to the subtitle of the book here comes out of the 60s counterculture. Uh, or rather, you know, really, um, it comes out of the 50s counterculture and operates as a kind of turning point as the 50s counterculture becomes the 60s counterculture. Um, right. And that's that's really important, too. Uh, and yeah, so we get some really fascinating moves here where Ruben, uh, like, you know, ultimately, like, uh, uh ultimately manages to trace back uh, not just like, say, Michael Jackson in the 80s, uh, his like fashion style and his dance moves uh, or actually both his fashion style and his dance moves. Right. Both of those get traced back to Renaissance fair performers. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's the the kind of scope and nature of the claims that that are happening here. Um, uh, in, like there's a, a really great a bit in the later chapter that is all specifically about music where um, she starts list like she, she, you know, starts out with some of these uh, acts that were performing at uh, the early Ren fairs. And then she uh, traces their influence on all of these bands that followed. And it's just like, Oh, mm-hmm. okay, Rachel Re- Lee Rubin, here we are. This is the part of the chapter where we list like two dozen bands that Michael listened to in high school and early <laughs> college. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like we're just going to go through all all the prog rock here okay all right <laughs> yeah that, yeah there are some places where that gets uh, a little overbearing for me mm-hmm. where it's like i get it the rin fair matters mm-hmm. but i mean it is important and especially if you're doing a historical reconstruction it's important to do the t- full two lines of bands um but it's like yeah of course iron butterfly was involved <laughs> Right. <laughs> How could they not be? <laughs> it's the Renaissance Festival. 
um, but but yeah, that, that's that's a major part of it too. Well, I mean, how do you? I I think something that's quite interesting here, and it's a question I have really specifically for you because it's not really addressed in the book, is like, what do you think about the desire for for historical capture here? Um, because the politics, like why people do it and the different reasons they have for it of, you know, replicating the 1500s, 1600s mm-hmm. and and what is historically accurate versus what isn't. And that really defines some debates, mm-hmm. you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s around different Renaissance festivals and fairs. Right. Uh, the West Coast tends toward more historical reenactment. The East Coast, it seems like the further east you get, the less anyone cares, and then you get to Georgia. And uh, speaking from being, you know, not far from the Helen uh, Festival, no one gives a shit, <laughs> like, even a little bit. Um, and, uh, like, even remotely, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, but but for you, but she never gets into, like, you know, the specific political reasons people might do that or that people have there. I don't know. What did you feel about the whole discussion of historical accuracy and capture and recreation? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's not, that's touched on lightly, I guess in the book. Yeah. And this can, can uh, you know, let us maybe dig uh, a bit more into like the first chapter rather than the intro mm-hmm. slash the book is a, a kind of big picture thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were some, re- well, do we want to say just really quickly, our two main characters that are most oh. introduced at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, are Phyllis and Ron Patterson. Yes. That just, I just want to get those names out there before we, we move on to the thing. Um, and because they are the people who are not, they are not the people who make the Renaissance fair. That's pretty clear, but they are the people who organize and conceptualize and kind of push it through to get it going. And they are going to be our main characters going into the first chapter. Mm-hmm. So just want to say that before we get out of the intro mm-hmm. and yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Ron and Phyllis uh, are living, you know, in like Northern California in the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, they are, well, Phyllis in particular is uh, <laughs> a real character. Uh, there, There's like a, when she gives, she, she's from Tennessee originally and she's talking about her early life. And uh, to be clear, a lot of these uh, conversations and sort of accounts are coming to Ruben directly, right? She's having mm-hmm. either face-to-face interviews or she's having like, you know, full email conversations with these people. Um, and Phyllis is talking about how like, there's like this incredible line. She's like, well, I graduated high school and then I like, uh, went to the local TV station and started my own variety show. <laughs> yeah, it was a different time. I know that was that's what I was thinking. It was just like you graduated high school and you went to the local TV station and started your own variety show. <laughs> like that was just a thing you could do in 1958 or whatever. Um, yeah. So. Uh, she has this kind of background, right? She's like a theater sort of person. Uh, she and her husband, Ron, move out to California, um, and they are living in the Laurel Canyon area. And uh, Phyllis starts getting involved with kind of uh, local, like like uh, the local youth center, basically, like teaching classes at the local youth center, working with children throughout the summer. Um, and uh, being a person with kind of a theater background and sort of a por- performing arts background, she uh, starts teaching children uh, commedia dell'arte, uh, like, you know, the uh, uh, 
renaissance uh, uh italian uh style of performance that's based uh largely on stock scenes and stock characters uh and is highly improvis- improvisational therefore right the way that comedia works mm-hmm. is that um you may have like a big outline for the scene that you want to play uh but the individual pieces of that scene can go many different ways because all of the performers have memorized uh kind of different like subroutines of uh, Mm -hmm. potential performances right the characters are very broadly and uh stereotypically drawn so you know you have like uh the the like sort of overbearing father and his like daughter that he won't allow to see uh uh the the boy that she's in love with right like something Mm -hmm. very archetypal like that yeah Um, and then they they play out the scene but it is just based on the archetype rather than memorizing lines it's it's not like shakespeare right right it's uh, and much more physical too, right? So Pratt falls and bonking people on the head. Uh, Punch and Judy. Tell me if this is wrong, mm-hmm. but I believe that Punch and Judy is inspired by Commedia dell'arte. It, right? it is, like, yeah. Punch and Judy. Okay. You can trace that back to Commedia. Um, so uh, Phyllis is like teaching kids this type of performance and having really good success with it. Um, and sort of simultaneous with this, this is the other kind of just interesting, fascinating like bit of history. There's a radio station. Uh, Pacifica. Um, mm-hmm. It's got a, I don't remember what the call numbers are. It's like, I did write them in my notes, but uh, you know, it's four things. It starts with a K. Um, uh, KPFK. Yeah, KPFK. Okay. Uh, so it is uh, still operating today, I'm pretty sure, um, and is still known as a, a pretty liberal or left-leaning uh, uh, radio station. Uh, especially so here in uh, the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, where also, and this is a point that is made by the book, uh, uh, we are living in the shadow of the Hollywood blacklist um, Mm -hmm. for various uh, creatives and performers who have been blacklisted from uh, working in Hollywood uh, because of their actual connections or their perceived connections uh, to uh, communist movements or leftist social movements more generally. Um, so there are a lot of people who are performers who are maybe looking for work and, uh, all these sort of pieces come together where, uh, the Pattersons kind of suggest as a a fundraiser for Pacifica, um, a, a pleasure fair, right. Uh, that is going Mm -hmm. to use the, the already sort of good response that she's had with, uh, the children and kind of like teaching them historical theater. It's not just a comedia that she teaches them, right? She actually talks about uh, uh, having like the youngest kids are learning uh, how to recite Homeric poetry and that sort of thing. It's like all historically uh, divided. Right. She makes them dress as like, quote unquote, cavemen. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is that, which is, uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I would pay a hundred dollars easy just to watch these children perform the like every one of the plays that are described in this book i just think <laughs> what was it like the children got so good that they were like invited to perform for the governor or something or, uh-huh. or something like that like they got so good at specifically commedia dell'arte that they mm-hmm. they did that which is bewildering to me mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but uh, uh so the the fair kind of comes about as this idea of like oh okay well um 
have kind of these performances and we'll like be able to hire other performers, right? We have all of mm-hmm. these uh, out of work actors who are like, you know, too leftist or appear too leftist to actually get jobs. And so they'll have something that they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to say really qu- briefly here too, if you're not familiar with the Hollywood blacklist, right? So maybe if you're uh, a listener who's not living in the United States, or if you're maybe young, or if you just don't know anything about it, right? Really quickly, uh, the Hollywood blacklist is one of the outputs of McCarthyism in the 1950s. Uh, the idea was that Hollywood was a hotbed of um, uh, communist activity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was the assumption slash assertion. And because of that, uh, McCarthy called people in from Hollywood to testify before Congress. You know, are you or have you ever been a communist? Um the and and they were show trials essentially right so mm-hmm. people uh, there were kind of two broad camps of what happened uh, or maybe i guess three broad camps of what happened um you know one camp was people who just assented and named names you know and mm-hmm. that that specifically is the language that is used naming names uh and they would say hey you know i went to these meetings or i was at work and someone suggested i go to a communist meeting that kind of thing so that's mm-hmm. that's one and uh, many actors name names. Uh, just just to be honest with you, you should look at the list, um, and that might uh, inform your historical opinion of many prominent people and perhaps even prominent political figures. You should check that out as well. The the other group uh, or, or a second group were people who uh, went and uh, refused and testified before Congress about refusing. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, Dalton Trumbo kind of very famously mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. lambasts the. The entire apparatus. I don't even know if Dalton Trumbo was a communist. It's been a while since I've done that work. But his speeches in front of Congress and the way he spoke to them um, are, you know, historic. You know, Mm -hmm. it it truly is. And and ultimately, he ends up on the blacklist. Um, And then the other set, the kind of last set of people who go and refuse to name names and they uh, invoke the Fifth Amendment. Right. So they will not self-incriminate, which is Mm -hmm. treated as self-incrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that is de facto um, uh, you, you confessing is the way that the uh, that that uh, the anti-communist trials treated it. And those people were also blacklisted. So and the blacklist was truly you were made toxic, like w- whatever the um, narrative that goes on right now uh, in particular political circles about cancel cancellation. Right. Whatever mm-hmm. that narrative is pales in comparison to the reality of the Hollywood blacklist, which m- meant that many people uh, died. Qu- quite a few of those people um, uh, committed suicide um, a- or they were shunted out forever or they didn't get to publish work under their own names for the next 30 years. Uh, mm-hmm. I was actually just reading a book recently about television writing in the 50s, and quite a few people were able to do that and work through fronts or work uh, in tandem with their partners um, mm-hmm. to, to do that. Uh, um, and so, yeah, it, it truly wrangled an entire generation of political sometimes passive activists, right? Sometimes people who just thought it might be a good idea to question, um, you know, capitalist values. It forced them out of Hollywood, sometimes to extremely, um, you know, deleterious ends. And it is a black stain on American history. And one that's rarely talked about, I think, at this point, and treated flippantly sometimes when it isn't. And so, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I just want to, I'm out here hooting and hollering about the Hollywood blacklist because I think that if there is uh, a thing to be concerned about in our present moment, it is something like this. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's rare on the show that we like, or, or you know, that I don't think we're like, 
banging the drum of a particular kind of of wariness on here. That's not what Game Study Study Buddies is about. But it, but the Hollywood blacklist, if you read anything about it in the the era that we live in right now, it is much more prescient uh, and present to me than many other things are that we currently panic about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but that's all to say, right? So she makes. Hollywood Blacklist, essentially, especially in the area she's living in, Laurel Canyon, produces a huge influx of of talent, of people who can't work, mm-hmm. literally cannot work. And so they start working on the thing. Sorry. Right. Now, now you can continue. Sorry to take a long dog leg out <laughs> into uh, the Hollywood Blacklist. Well, and uh, no, that's good, because one of the points that gets made here. Is like the uh, all these people who came from who were blacklisted by Hollywood who start working at the fair uh, aren't being all sunshine and roses about the the (laughs) political environment in which the fair is taking place. The fair ends up having a specific and and like we're again like fundraising for a left wing radio station and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a political cast to this, right? The the humor at the fair um is satirical of the media environment in which uh this is taking place the um the california free press gets its start here mm-hmm. uh like a uh you know independent uh newspaper as uh, uh modeled on like the village voice uh there's a, a bunch of information about this in in the mm. book actually the, about the los angeles free press oh the los angeles free press okay the freep yes uh <laughs> So it gets its start here and uh, uh, Art Kumpkin, who is the guy who's like printing it, uh, like has an issue that is uh, you fold it one way and it's like uh, an issue of the Los Angeles Free Press talking about like current political events and so on. And if you fold it a different way, it's a bunch of joke articles uh, about things happening at the fair. But it's stuff like, you know, Shakespeare being put on trial for obscenity charges. Um so uh, for one way of looking at historical authenticity or whatever, uh, there is a claim made here by a couple of people and uh, explicitly in the text by by Ruben um, that this is of a of a piece with the way that uh, this type of popular entertainment would have worked in as it's, you know, invariably called Shakespeare's time. Um, right. uh, which is true, right? Like there's, a, I think, a, a very weird line of thinking that, that people have that like, uh, the great art, right? Capital G, capital A, right? The art that lasts through history is, is somehow timeless that it, uh, doesn't bother with kind of the specificities of its moment. It instead, uh, you know, grasps for some, uh, universal value that, uh, uh transcends history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm here to tell you, man, like all the earliest tragedies we have from ancient Greece are about kings really being bad at being kings and everyone around them being like, holy shit. Like, what do we do about this bad king until everyone dies? Mm-hmm. Um, like, must be cursed. <laughs> like that's that's not apolitical, right? Those are actual political concerns. And so, too, with with uh, uh, Shakespeare. Um, even as, you know, uh, he and his cohort were people who lived under, uh, um, uh, uh, like central laws, right? There were certain things that they, uh, couldn't say on stage and there, we, we have lost plays from this time period, uh, not even because necessarily they spoke to some, uh, current event in a way that was unflattering. Uh, if a person, if someone in the nobility, like, saw your play or heard about your play and heard a joke and thought that joke was about them and they raised enough of a stink, like, you could end up in jail, regardless of whether or not you intended that, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, 
that's the sort of thing that happened. Um, so uh, this is kind of connected to this this older tradition of performing arts as being very in the moment, as being um, aware of and responsive to its own political conditions uh, and also geared toward like generating a community of feeling or like, you know, a community of people who uh are maybe on the same page about this stuff, or it's at least, you know, willing to ask kind of the same questions of the status quo or to have kind of maybe similar grievances about uh, uh, the structure of society. Um, and part of this that is really fascinating to me, love the ideology here. Uh, when Patterson pitches the fair, I, she's like she's pitching it as a medieval fair, right? She's thinking of it as a middle as like a marketplace in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And someone on the board of the radio station doesn't want to have a Middle Ages fair because the Middle Ages weren't good on human rights. And right. so she's like, OK, we'll call it a Renaissance fair. Right. Um, because that's and, when it turned around, right? Right, and that's you know, in in my discipline, this is a thing that people have. It, it, it used to be like you know, commonplace. This is how you would like describe the way that history moved, and this is a thing that you know, over the past forty years or something, um, we've worked against, right? We've deconstructed this notion, but there's this idea that you know, the Renaissance, the the literally the rebirth, is this moment where suddenly people decided, oh. Uh, we don't like living under bad conditions. We would rather live under good conditions. <laughs> All this mud in the streets. What gives? Uh, I, want, right. I want Leonardo da Vinci now. <laughs> right. So right. just this idea of like, well, the Middle Ages didn't have human rights. Like, you know, spoiler alert, the Renaissance also wasn't great on human rights. You know what they invented right. during the Renaissance? Chattel slavery. Right. Um, but, you know, some might argue you don't get the notion of human rights until you invent the notion of people who aren't human or humans who don't have rights by the fact of their be very being. Hmm, something yeah, to consider. A central claim of the Enlightenment or of, mm -hmm. of critiques of the Enlightenment. Right. Is that right. in order for, you know, the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, right, are both uh, intellectual periods in which a lot of things are occurring. Right. Uh, but they're also political economic periods. Right. They they describe changes in uh, what what would become the global economy. And, yeah, chattel slavery is, is produced during that period, um, as is modern capitalism. Right. The, mm -hmm. Those two things are or, or not even modern capitalism capitalism uh, <laughs> as a thing right you know this is the the giovanni Arrighi kind of maneuver mm -hmm. right that if you trace the movement of money um uh you know across the various european powers that have that money beginning with the renaissance you see the the formation of of capitalism and at the same time chattel slavery those those two things are unabstractable from one another in their political history and so yeah yeah and the notion of human rights comes out of the the moment of of understanding what a universal is and who gets access to a universal you know this is a uh, another thing where we don't talk about the Hollywood blacklist in every episode, but I think we do talk about this fairly often, although maybe not in this explicit <laughs> terms, right? Um, this question of universalism informs what we've talked about with Huizinga and Kalwa, for example, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so this question of the historical representation and what happened when and how do you appropriately speak to history, that's as central to the core text of game studies, I would say, as it is for this question in the Renaissance Fair. They're not unrelated. They are you know, how do you hold history? And I think this is why um, you're pretty critical on these these moments, right? Of like, when does history inform how we think the present? 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's informed by your disciplinary background. I think that, you know, some people think we are maybe aggressively harsh on <laughs> on those core texts of game studies, but I think it's because we are sensitive to how the pieces fit together, and you perhaps even more than I am, mm-hmm. um, because you study the period in which these pieces were formed together in a way that we um, that we think they were, and then under analysis, we might understand them in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Well, it, right. And uh, so this... I'm not uh, laying all this out to be like, Ruben should have talked about these things because it's not no, yeah. her field. These, these are the things that uh, uh, she's interested in talking about. But to explain maybe um, one of the ways that I can or one of the ways that I understand uh, some of what's happening here. And it brushes up against certain claims that Ruben does make. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is going on in broad strokes is that the people at the Renaissance Fair are using a kind of imagined idea of the past to uh, uh, speak truth to contemporary power, right? Mm-hmm. That's straight, like, that is straight up truly what is happening. Um, and the sort of, like, open air, like, uh, uh, excessiveness, right? The carnivalesque nature of the fair is being uh, presented as a counterpoint to uh, the staid conservatism of the 1950s. I cannot tell you how many times, like, uh, dudes who were alive in the 50s and 60s in this book, when they get uh, interviewed, are talking about how uncomfortable they felt wearing suits. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, the one I really liked was from uh, Art Kunkin, uh, who I think it's not an interview with Ruben, but an interview with someone else. I, no, maybe it was an interview with Ruben. Um, but is like I put on a wool suit and I was deeply uncomfortable at the fairground. <laughs> yeah. um, by the way, I just looked up as a quick aside. I looked up Art Kunkin to see like, well, what do you do after the, the freep? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Became an esotericist. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he inherited, in 1995, inherited the library of Israel Regardi and uh, was the president of the Philosophical Research Society from 91 to 92, which is the group founded like, by mainly P. Hall. Wow. Yeah, so he's like a <laughs> was like a real deal esotericist <laughs> in his later life. I just, I found that interesting. That's incredible. I love the picture of him in this book. There are, there are pictures in this book, by the way. And there's a picture yeah. of him, like, basically dressed like Robin Hood, like, holding uh, uh, copies of the Los Angeles Free Press. It's very, yeah. very good. Yeah, he seems fascinating. Um, uh, so uh, the the thing that happens here, right, is we get the, the kind of formation of a binary where uh, the fair is defining itself in opposition to, like, mainstream 1950s culture. Um, which in, gets endowed with a lot of other values. There's a lot of, uh, you know, the, think of basically think of what like uh, the Fallout games, right, from mm-hmm. three onward want you to think about the 1950s, where uh, everything is about like technological progress, right? Uh, wow, look at look at this uh, stuff we can do with plastic these days, the wonders of modern science, um, so on and so forth. Uh, the uh, the counterculture, as it coalesces in the fair, uh, starts to think of itself or present itself as uh, part of, you know, like the back to the land movement as like we are we are uh, withdrawing from uh, the artificialities of technological consumer society. And we are moving into something that is like more natural, right? It is more natural to be half naked out here on the fairground than it is to be in a wool suit in an air conditioned office or whatever. Um, uh, and so part of what is happening here with like the ways that history is being thought about or thought through, uh, uh, 
and this is, you know, a, a, a thing that I am sensitive to, as you say, Cameron, um, is it is like uh, essentially trying to... I'm not saying that you cannot use the past, right? And sort of like your mm -hmm. feelings about the past or the feelings that you can generate about what people think about the past toward various political ends. Um, but I am wary of kind of maneuvers where people imagine the past as somehow simpler than the present, mm -hmm. um, which is part of what's happening here, right? I think part of what happens here is like, oh, we, we like there was a track that humanity was supposed to follow and we went off course from that. And now we're going to course correct. Yeah, and and there's lots of quotations in the book of uh, 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 Phyllis Patterson in particular saying that, you mm -hmm. know, and and there's also a really deep connection between the people who are involved in this and then the back to the land movement. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's apparently a uh, Oregon festival that gets started around the same time period that really is heavily involved with the back to the land movement. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there there is this kind of. Um, uh, pastoralism, you know, anti-technological maneuver that's happening at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we we went too far down the you know the techno pathway. Right. And that's also not to say that I think that, like, you know, everything that comes out of technological consumer society is actually great. No, no. Like, yeah. I I am, like, ultimately, like, my point of skepticism is the basic underlying assumption that there is, like, uh, a point that we were supposed to be heading toward. Right? right. That there was, like, a telos. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. that's how the world works. Um, I don't yeah. think that's how history works. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I think happens in like the Renaissance fair here in the way that they're like trying to, uh, think back from the fifties, uh, and frankly, I think some of this like, per you know, uh, uh, persists into maybe the present day a little bit, um, when we get into, well, you know, present day, quote unquote, 10 years ago now, when we get the, the modern interviews of, uh, trying to go back to a time of like some sort of presumed innocence right before uh all of the stuff that the renaissance actually kicks off like really consolidates during the enlightenment and then sort of the the consequences of that that we've been living with ever since um you know like the uh trying to imagine a time before capitalism and like mm -hmm. one of the ways that this happens is like we remove or we try to remove um, uh, the big corporate machine by having people who are artisans, like, you know, making their own goods and selling them directly to the consumer, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, decreasing the amount of like mediation between, uh, uh, the object, how it is produced and then how it is sold. Um, and that kind of gets us into like the second chapter, which is all about like how artisans work at the fair. Mm hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think here about other just stuff sticking out. Here mm -hmm. around that, uh, one of the things is that uh, another thing that the Renaissance Fair kind of accelerates or gets going in the 20th century is uh, conservative talk radio strategy. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's important, which, too. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. And there's a long section in here. I'm not going to, like, recount the whole thing. But basically, she says there are a couple of Californian talk radio hosts who basically make it their business. You know, it's a common strategy now. They pick out a thing that the hippies are doing that they hate, and they just hammer it constantly over mm -hmm. and over. Every day, it's the same thing, um, and it's just more grievances against the hippies. And so the Renaissance Fair becomes its own subset of that, of mm -hmm. w what can we say about the Renaissance Fair now? And if you're aware of of kind of the talk radio or even cable news strategy of the current moment, that sounds pretty contemporary to me, too. Um, mm -hmm. But But she basically says that the Renaissance Fair, because of its kind of grabbiness, um, and how it localized a lot of those concerns into like one thing. Look at the men wearing tights, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about in a bit. Uh, that that really allowed for that strategy to start moving. So um, 
you know, if there's a political goal to the um, uh, uh, to the Renaissance Fair, there's also a reactionary goal that that comes up around it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, actually, before we get into the other chapters, the the chapter does this introduction does kind of end by sketching. Um, like the broader form history of the Renaissance here, and it's useful probably to just recap there. Uh, mm-hmm. So in addition to what you just said about the right wing response, there are protests. Uh, the first Renaissance Fair, the Patterson's Renaissance Fair, does uh, one year get shut down, uh, mm-hmm. I think, for like with the exception of maybe like one day where they yeah. run, but no one's allowed in. Yeah, it's two weekends in a row and the first weekend runs and, and it does fine. And then mm-hmm. the second weekend in that week, it shut down and then a, a camera crew was let in. But that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of what happens then, uh, because the right wing media is kind of paying a lot of attention to this, uh, in addition to, I guess, you know, the regular media, because the, like th- there is a curiosity element here. <laughs> there are yeah. a lot of articles being written about like, wow, look at what these people in Laurel Canyon are getting up to mm-hmm. um, the uh Ren Fair or the Renaissance Fair becomes a kind of cultural touchstone in its moment, right? People are yeah. talking about it coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to relocate almost immediately. I think the first year runs in Laurel Canyon and the second year is on some property a little bit further away uh, that they're like basically renting for the weekend. And that's where the protests kick in. It's like getting the property owners not to do it and then getting an injunction uh, to keep people from selling stuff. I mean, there's a bunch of like sequential, you know, because mm-hmm. the, it's there's a moral panic element to it, right? The hippies right. are going to show up with their acid and, um, you know, steal your children or whatever. Mm-hmm. I love there's a quote from some guy who's like, I might have to shut down my winery for the weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, oh, please, someone <laughs> think of the winery. Uh, yes, uh, there, there's a, a lot of great uh, quotations from like newspaper articles of people, you know, <laughs> panicking about it. The other thing that I thought was funny uh, as a thing is like it's it's you know they are very explicit that this is not a happening. You mm-hmm. know, this is not like the hippies show up and they just won't leave and they like hang around or whatever, right? You know, it's not one of those. It's not just an excuse to come do drugs and blah blah blah. You know, it's its own you know unique kind of thing, and it's so cool that celebrities come. Right. And I, it's the second one, I think, where Peter Falk comes uh-huh. and it's like a big deal that Peter Falk came to the Renaissance Festival. Uh-huh. And what I thought was so funny, I was like, if Peter Falk came to anyone's event, I mean, obviously he's not alive anymore, but like in a universe in which Peter Falk were alive and he appeared at someone's event in 2023, people would feel the same way. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah here's like the, it's one of those things where you, you see the twitter accounts that are you know they post medieval paintings and they're, they're like they're just like us that, mm-hmm. that was me i was like in the 60s they were just like us they like peter falk right people loved it when when peter falk showed up at places and it's <laughs> true did. uh yeah. yeah so it's not clear uh despite this opposition the fair is going over like gangbusters right it's super mm-hmm. popular it's great um, people love it uh and uh because of that, we get imitators, right? Uh, it starts sort of like percolating out into the broader culture. We get uh, uh, the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, the one in Texas. Uh, the other big one that shows up is usually in Maryland. And then there's the one in Massachusetts. Um, those are the ones that kind of show up most frequently. That's not all mm-hmm. of them. Uh, the Georgia one also shows up occasionally, but I don't know mm-hmm. when it comes about. Anyway, yeah, I have no idea. Anyway, the point is, uh, uh, other Renaissance fairs start happening in other places. And this is when uh, the Patterson's, I think it's the Patterson's trademark, the Renaissance fair brand. And that's why so many other fairs are actually called Renaissance festivals. 
Um, yeah, I for being a book on history, I'm actually pretty unclear about some of the major dates on uh-huh. this. Uh, even having read it within the last week, you know, I read it uh, kind of like a chapter a day for the past week, and. Uh, I do think that like a second run at this book or like a second edition that does more stuff at some point in the future, it would be really great if there were just like a chronology at the front uh-huh. that's like, here are the 20 major events that are covered in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the sequence in which they happened in because it's really unclear to me. And I'm looking here. This is the 38th year of the Georgia Renaissance Festival. So it's from the 80s. OK. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so uh, the the big picture kind of thing that happens uh, by by the end of the 60s, it started to go nationwide um, in the 70s uh, per Ruben. Um, we get kind of the division between various festivals with regard to like which ones are going to be more concerned with like historical authenticity um, because there's a, a double meaning to authenticity in the fair context. One is like authentic to history in the sense of like, are you speaking your proper old English, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are you, you know, wearing the right clothes? Is your sign kind of, uh, you know, done with the correct type of calligraphy? And the Pattersons lean on this. Uh, this becomes a hallmark of their of their festivals um, because they also basically in this, you know, makes sense given the background for them. Uh, they uh, try to fold out from this into something called the Living History Center because they really want to make the case that the fair is ultimately educational, that there's something to be learned here about history, and they uh, do other types of historical reenactments uh, through the Living History Center. Um, uh, you know, opposed to that, you get uh, the emergence of fairs that are more open to, like, fantastical elements, Um uh, you know, the, the, with the 70s uh, and into the 80s, of course, we see kind of like the rise of like D&D culture also very glimpsed uh, uh, at a uh, glimpsed at a at a uh, an angle here at, in a couple of places. Um, and then uh, moving into like the late 80s and then into the 90s, uh, this comes from a lot of the people who have been participating in the fair. This is the way that they put it um, in the 80s, more of a focus on like family friendly environments, quote unquote. And then in the 90s, we start seeing the formation of like corporate entities that own and run multiple fairs uh, across the country. Right. The, the full corporatization of uh, not all, but many of, of the festivals that have been running. Um, yeah, it, the it, it was kind of shocking to me to understand that. I mean, it's a story everywhere, right, around all of these around many kind of countercultural things. Uh, that emerge in in on the West Coast in the '60s, which is that um, the values that it had made it very um, uh, vulnerable to capture, to capitalist capture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it 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 was specifically principled, but not principled in a way that was resistant to any form of monetization or capitalist, um, uh, you know, eating. And so, mm-hmm. I, I what was really astonishing to me, truly, is that a, a, there is not a substantial focus in this book on the fact that like it that renaissance festival becomes kind of this floating ip right uh-huh. it's an early form of like capture of of the public by the private and and intellectual property in particular mm-hmm. um and I, that's not her focus i get why that's not in here but i do think that would be like a kind of critical conversation you would have to have if you say wanted to teach about renaissance festivals mm-hmm so chapter two, Artisans of the Realm, Crafters at the Fair. This is just a chapter that is about uh, what I mentioned in in like kind of the big rundown before. Like mm-hmm. uh, the fair is a place where people who make their own stuff set up their booths uh, and 
they can sell it, right? These are people who uh, make leather goods, uh, people who make like jewelry, people who uh, a big thing uh, that comes out of the fair culture itself is like people who make garb to then wear at the fair. Uh, but also, you know, pottery, uh, uh, blown glass, um, kind of like blow, blown glass is an arts movement, right? As a handicraft movement um, emerges from people who want to like they, you know, glass in the fifties is pro- being produced largely on kind of like an industrial scale. And there are people who know how to make it. And they're like, I don't want to make, uh, just a whole bunch of windows or whatever. Like I want to make mm-hmm. little baubles or whatever to sell to people. And so they can come sell at the fair. Yeah. Um, there's a big claim here. That's basically if you buy anything, kind of like I referred to at the beginning of the, the episode, if you buy anything, that's like a handcrafted good, uh, the culture of the fair and specifically the work that the Pattersons did to go around California and find artisans who were uh, interested in like non-commercial handmade goods mm-hmm. that, that, that we don't get really like a broad American culture of handcrafting because the, like, uh, I forget the organization, but like the American craft crafters guild or Caf- craftsmen's association, something like that. Like mm-hmm. that comes after this, you mm-hmm. know, which is like a big advocate for handmade work and preservation of skills and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I have no ability to test that claim here. I just have to trust what the book says, but it's a pretty big argument. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the very idea that what I would say is like the dominant form of, of like cultural exchange for in a big part of the world, right? Like, I, I don't know. I try to buy more of that kind of stuff than I try not to buy that kind of stuff. If I'm buying like a mug or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's part of um, this whole engine that, that Ruben has outlined here that uh, uh, in reaction to the fifties where it's like, it's supposed to be cool and good that you go into super duper Mart and buy all your cram or whatever <laughs> uh, made by Robco. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, the Renaissance Fair makes cool again the idea that you go to a little market and buy a thing from a person who made it. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes it like, monetizable for them. Like they yes. can do that and make money. Uh huh. Right. It, it, it like uh, normalizes that idea or sort of like pulls it back into uh, public view and makes it a thing that is like cool for people to do. And so she says, you know, the, there's a craft revival movement in the 60s and 70s, and it happens uh, because the Renaissance Fair gives a location, uh, right, gives a place where that can become monetizable, where like you can we can see it happening um and that's she really unfortunately cool. gives like the most depressing anecdote about the georgia renaissance festival around that do you, do you remember what i'm talking about uh no i don't she's talking about the conversation she overhears between two people and one person oh. bought like a handmade mug you know that that you know was like interesting and and for drinking beers out of and whatnot mm-hmm. and someone has like the souvenir mug and the person right. who bought the handcrafted mug is like i wish i'd gotten the official souvenir yeah which is like a fine emotion to have like i'm not complaining about that but she uses that as a way of kind of demonstrating that like there's a way that that uh handcrafted ethic that was so central to the early renaissance fairs and festivals that that that's kind of been killed off by a you know a mass production model right um or is in the in in always being killed off i guess moment by moment mm-hmm. well and that's a another one of the things that uh the, the sort of like fault lines or sort of the schisms in fair culture, uh, you get more uh, in in contemporary fairs, especially, it seems like mm-hmm. um, you're getting a lot more booths that are selling like pre-made merch. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, styrofoam swords or whatever, that that sort of thing. And there are people who have been with uh, the fair circuit from its earliest instances who see this as, you know, the, the slow and dreadful march of the corporate consumer model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that is happening. And at the same time, there is still a space for kind of this artisan work. And she has uh, uh, several interviews with contemporary artisans who talk about how, you know, they like doing this. They they like sort of the lifestyle. They like being able to make stuff with their hands and sell it. Um, and uh, the the sort of like uh, way that it's put is that early on, like obviously all these people who were doing handicrafts in 1960 or whatever, were not thinking like, ah, if only there were a Renaissance festival. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Renaissance festival sort of like captures uh, like this mode of work. Um, And then someone says in the book, like, it's sort of like learning a craft now is kind of like your before knowing a craft was your ticket into the fair. Now, learning a craft is like your ticket to the lifestyle. You know, there are people who uh, uh, specifically like come into like the Renaissance fair circuit uh, and like it enough that they like learn to do something that they can then do at the fair so they can spend, you know, the next however many years of their life working at the fair. Uh, yeah yeah and and that there's like a, a cultural investment in that too right mm-hmm. and i really liked you know this is a chapter where i didn't find like a huge amount of things of like wow you know again like i said at the beginning right like for me there's not a lot in this book that i can like easily apply to other analysis i'm doing but that doesn't really matter uh but I, there's just some great stuff here about how like there were new forms of uh, like art and handcraft that were invented at the Renaissance festival. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of the styles that we associate with like the grateful dead and like mm-hmm. the, the kind of uh, jam band holdover music festival culture that, you know, emerged from the sixties and still remains today. Like a lot of that stuff and the design ideas and all the things like that came from the Ren fair mm-hmm. first. Right. Uh, that's where they were kind of demoed. Loose uh, flowery both- clothing. Yes, right. Yes, like the flower child aesthetic uh, was just as born in the the Ren Fair as anywhere else, which right. is wild to me. Um, the uh, we both made a note of this, and honestly, <laughs> if there's a if there's a moment in this book where I was like, I want to read the book entirely about that, and it is it shows up a little bit and then disappears. There's a moment where there's a former like Vietnam special ops guy. Mm-hmm. I, I think you marked it as a Green Beret. I didn't yes. write that down, but yeah. he he's a former Green Beret and he's like a clothier, I think, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But and he says that all clothing is a psyop. Mm-hmm. All of it. And mm-hmm. so like whatever you do is whatever you want to do. Because like it's all like, you know, physical ideology to like impact the psychological presence of other people. And that and and in that she talks about how a huge number of the people who are involved in like medieval reenactment, civil war reenactment um and then like the crafts uh movements that are involved in this like all these little pieces of the renaissance culture renaissance fair culture a lot of them are vietnam veterans um and that's the book i want to read yeah no and and like to be clear in case it wasn't clear from what cameron said like psyops is the word that that guy uses right he says (laughs) all clothing is psyops anyway uh as his kind of defense for like well, I'm just going to like work at the Renaissance Fair and make wild, goofy clothing that people can wear, and I'm going to wear what I want. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then uh, the next chapter then is called Shakespeare, He's in the Alley, mm, Bob Dylan reference, uh, performing at the fair. And this is just all about kind of kind One of star. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, this chapter is about the types of music that is performed at the fair. It touches on what we uh, were talking about earlier, where like different types of like ethnic or world music um, uh, get like uh, introduced to one another. And we end up with like lots of really odd, weird fusions. Uh, uh, Middle Eastern music is specifically marked out as well as uh, klezmer, um, trad- traditional Eastern European Jewish music. And then uh, various types of music of the British Isles, uh, uh, Morris dancing, uh, also Celtic music. Uh, all of this stuff uh, comes together. Uh, oh, oh, there's like a, a really fascinating um, like sort of sub section of a chapter that talks about the importance of drone in music, mm-hmm. uh, which like, you know, as someone who listens to a lot of drone metal <laughs> is like, yeah, like this is great. Like drone metal comes out of the Ren fair, of course. Yep. Uh, uh, so just like all these sort of like sounds uh, and sort of like experimentation with musical styles that becomes a hallmark of say, you know, like your latter period Beatles records. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and is like very indicative of like the atmosphere of the sixties music in general. Um, all of this is coming up through the Ren Fair. Uh, then we get into like sort of physical performers. There's a really fascinating, um, section where, uh, Robert Shields, um, who was a, a mime, uh, in like, very, a very famous mime, like worked on television with, uh, his, his, uh, wife, um, Lauren, I think, uh, Yarnell, uh, they were like a duo, uh, this will be important later, I'll revisit it, but, um, Mm -hmm. there's like this fascinating, uh, thing where he's like describing his experience of going to the Ren Fair and seeing a (laughs) mime performer and like going backstage and essentially being mimified, like he's like, it's, it's like almost, uh, uh, you know, religious in kind of the way that he's relating it because he he sees this guy performing and it's a, a type of performance he's never seen before and he's like what what is this what are you doing and he's like like i'm a mime and then he like <laughs> uh gently like you know uh puts the makeup on him and like starts teaching him how to do mime routines and obviously like it was a very impactful experience for him he made it his entire career um but it's also just such a wild thing to like picture in your head um, and this is yes. it's uh, a it's a touching moment from an 80s uh, film in which, uh, uh, you know, one one young man discovers his true calling as a mime. Yeah. And this is uh, uh, I mentioned that uh, he and uh, uh, Shields and Yarnell had a, um, you know, a, a television program. And this is where I was talking about earlier, where um, mm-hmm. they had robot characters that they would play like wind up toys. Uh, and uh, Ruben uh, makes the uh, claim that. Uh, Michael Jackson was inspired by this performance and, and Jackson is uh, was on record as having said he like watched Shields and Yarnell perform when he was a kid and that he really liked them. Um, mm-hmm. And so she makes the connection here to like, you know, this is where um, Michael Jackson's like both his fashion style and his dance styles uh, come from, uh, ultimately saying that, like, were it not for the Renaissance Fair, uh, we would never have invented the robot. Like not the robot, the the actual like concept, right? But the robot, the the dance style, right? Mm, okay, yeah, right. Like I I don't know. Like I'm not a, a music historian, but again, this is uh, the type of claim that is being made in this book, uh, yeah. uh, trying to see where the Renaissance Fair could be seen to impact various areas of American popular culture. Yeah, I, you know, for me, this is tied into like one of the next things that comes up here, which is like. Uh, 
all of the comedy acts that are involved mm-hmm. um, and that they show up and I actually watch some of the, the we <laughs> I sent video <laughs> to you of a couple of YouTube videos of the flying Karamazov brothers, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, their earlier work is amazing to me. Like mm-hmm. there is a gag that I sent to you. It's from like a special <laughs> they did yes. there. They're, I sent you this video of the flying Karamazov brothers and they have, it's two people juggling and they're juggling back and forth and they're juggling like the big bowling pins, the juggling pins that you're familiar with. And then a third person lowers from the ceiling uh, and they like come down and they start juggling. Boom, boom, boom. And they're on, in their own wires. And they make this joke where they're like, it's, they can't even see the strings. And then uh, a, fourth set of juggling pins fall from the ceiling but they are on strings you know and so it's like ah ha ha you know they're literally juggling but here's the thing and but then like the kicker punchline is that a dummy falls at like max speed yes. it looks like someone is in the rafters and threw it into the ground and so it just like boom hits the ground and like it's a, a fully complete and wonderful gag right which it's like that was his pins and then he, you know the fourth guy died <laughs> uh, and then a fourth guy comes from behind you know and he like grabs the dummy and he starts juggling too and they're great and they're amazing performers and that sent you a later performance that i found of them like j- making electronic music with juggling yeah that was and odd. it's one of the it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Like, I, I truly, I hated it. And it made me, like, uncomfortable to watch. Because well, it kind of didn't work. The audience seems uncomfortable. Like, it's one of those things where you watch it and you're like, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to be reacting to this because it's so <laughs> odd. It, it's really odd. But you also see a really clear connection between, like, that and the Blue Man group, right? Uh-huh. You know, yes. there, there's a way that, like, what the Flying Karamazov viewers, which I'm making, or brothers, but... uh I'm making fun of their their one thing, but like I watched, I don't know, like 40 minutes of the mm-hmm. other stuff. Like they're really good and they have an early PBS special that is, I think, a Shakespeare um, adaptation that they're doing, like a full play. And that's on YouTube. Um, it, it was a PBS special and it aired apparently one time and never again. So, it, you know, it's just being passed around. But they are amazing. Mm-hmm. A- amazing storytellers. Amazing performers. Like the, the repartee is... Uh, uh, um, what do you call it? It's practiced, you mm-hmm. know, but it is not scripted at mm-hmm. all. It it has an improvisational form that's really funny. There's a lot of like gags in it, and you know they attach the flying Karamazov brothers, or Ruben attaches them to like Pin and Teller, right? Mm-hmm. And that Pin and Teller come out of the fair, um, and fair culture. Notably, I actually listened to a long interview with Teller not that long ago mm-hmm. of him just talking about his career for a couple hours, and the fair did not come up. Interesting. Uh, he talked about shows they did mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, like stage performances. I don't think there were maybe I'm just forgetting it, but I was shocked to read this book and to understand how integral the fair was because he didn't really he would talk about carnivals and stuff like that, but not the fair. Well, um, she's a fascinating quote, thing to write out. You know, she quotes from, I think, Penn later uh, where he says, like, uh like we performed in the fair to get out of the fair right like we right, used the right. fair as a like we wanted to leave the fair behind as soon as possible but that is like where they started which is you know again very interesting that was another moment where i was like oh so penn and teller get started here too another another way in which like <laughs> the renaissance fair by proxy impacts teenage michael i i realized <laughs> in reading this i was like oh yeah watching penn and teller routines when i was like you know, 10 or younger had a, had a big effect on how I think about performance and what performance is. Yeah. Penn Jillette is in like the top five most annoying people ever to live. Right. <laughs> but, uh, undeniable as a stage performer. Right. Right. Like, you know, Penn and Teller bullshit. Ugh. 
mm-hmm. you know, it, currently, I'm sure when I was like 14, I thought it was the smartest thing on earth. Right. right. But like, I don't care about, you know, Pendulette truly one of the most like just annoying people. But I, you watch the stage performance, you watch them do the thing. And, and, you know, I, there's a reason why Pin and Teller is the thing I can say and people know it. I mean, they are extremely talented at the thing I like that they do. <laughs> right, right. I was thinking like, oh, yeah, like this thing where you get up on stage and you perform a magic trick and you explain how the magic trick is happening while you do it. <laughs> like, Yeah, right? and it still works. Like there's no mystery that, it, you know, it, it is astonishing what they do with like dispelling mystery and it's still working, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's still important. It's still very cool, you know, and, it, you know, it's. I, I like stage magic a lot. I like practical, you know, I like magic as a thing. Um, and, you know, Ricky J mm-hmm. uh, is hugely important uh, for me, uh, like both as a thinker and as a as a performer. And yeah, Penn and Teller are right up there for me, too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that, those guys uh, basically what is called like the new vaudeville, which gets really popular in the 80s. Um, and it's yeah. defined by a kind of like populism, a kind of return to a, a sort of uh mass older form there's some history right. here about vaudeville and everything that is interesting but also i don't have much to say about because i'm not a vaudeville historian yeah there's uh, some some vaudeville stuff and also how that you know uh kind of gets you know the relationship between it and minstrelsy is uh-huh. maybe glossed over a little bit here yeah um in a way that i was like huh uh and and also the thing for me that was really interesting is like well, where's the catskills circuit right like right. Like there, there's a whole branch of comedy and something that I strongly associate with acts like Penn and Teller. And just to be honest with you, the Flying Karamazov Brothers. When I watched that, I was thinking, this is Catskills stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, which is also inherited from vaudeville. And maybe what's happening is that there's just kind of two branches that are inherited from vaudeville that go in kind of two separate directions that that uh, grab the same stuff, right? But like Jewish American comedy. Uh, you know, of the 50s, 60s, 70s, sounds a lot like the Flying Karamazov Brothers. And I think it seems to me, and I've seen original vaudeville, you know, recordings or listened to original vaudeville recordings too. And I would say that like, there's just as much inherited from the Catskills stuff and that kind of stand up and performance, uh, you know, Mel Brooksy kind of stuff too, because, mm-hmm. you know, that's all of a, a genealogy. Um, as it is just from Ren Faire stuff too. And so that kind of gap there was a little bit confusing to me. Um, and just because I have a personal interest in like stand up in the eighties, you know, and like Gary Shandling, mm-hmm. I, you know, everyone knows I'm a freak for Gary Shandling. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've done a lot of reading about like, who are the comedians who were there and where were they coming from? And like, what did it mean to be funny in America in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Um, outside of like going to the comedy store or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I, I felt that gap there, but um, it was at least interesting to read about. Yeah. Uh, other things that we can blame the Renaissance Fair for uh, the birth <laughs> of improv theater, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Um, and uh, hey, okay, let me mention a positive thing. <laughs> I guess improv's positive, but but uh, the the invention of not punching down. Yes, that was the next move, <laughs> <laughs> which lo- is wild. I never would have thought that, but yeah. she credits them for it. Yeah, yeah. There's like a, a really interesting um, uh, interview with David Naughty, um, who is uh, <laughs> he is in this a bubble magician. Um, that's how he's described. And <laughs> yeah. I had to look this up because I had an idea, but I was like, I need to make sure. 
<laughs> that's, right. And like what he does is he basically does kind of like, you know, uh, uh, tricks and like sleights of hand by like blowing massive bubbles. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like juggling bubbles and that sort of thing without popping them. Right. Um, uh, but he talks about uh, how one of the things that he felt like was really definitive for like him and his cohort of performers is that they were trying to do comedy um, that specifically didn't rely on like the uh, sexist and racist stereotypes that were uh, by his you know reckoning like the bread and butter of mainstream 50s comedy. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and that is maybe maybe the major difference between this and like Catskills comedy. Right. Right. Like, there's a lot of insult. Both seem to have a lot of insult comedy, but you know, you, you dig through the Catskill stuff and and uh, or like Chitlin Circuit too, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, d- different vibe it sounds like than what was going on at the Renaissance Festival, right? And yeah, like that was just like straight up. He's just talking about like you know out of out of like you know our political commitments. Like we didn't want to like basically be exclusionary. Uh, we worked to come up with ways of being funny that uh, weren't about like punching people in the audience or like you know implied people in the audience, right? Like mm-hmm. that. Uh, uh, it was comedy about like laughing about things that that, that didn't necessarily like exclude uh, people from, you know, the group of laughers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fine Karamazov brothers, like longer performance that I watched, mm-hmm. uh, you get to see that a little bit in there because in their transitions, they do a little bit of like insult audience interaction stuff, crowd work. And uh, like w- the joke, the first one they go for is like, hey, you're not laughing. I got my eye on you. Right. Which is mm-hmm. like a family friendly, you know, like ribbing you know it's mm-hmm. the lightest of light insult humor right but like uh one could imagine like you know a woman joke in there instead mm-hmm. and, and during the transition period of like repartee that makes the thing keep going while they're moving around or getting new props or whatever mm-hmm. i watched them juggle sickles it was cool neat yeah it was really that's cool. family friendly mm-hmm. uh so just some other performances that go on at the fair that come up here. Uh, jousting. There is surprisingly little about jousting in this book, uh, I guess, compared to the way that jousting sits in the Ren Fair and the popular imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, this was uh, written after the cable guy, too. So I don't understand why you wouldn't <laughs> go right for it, you know? Uh, another really big important thing are what I called the street characters, right? Or the street performers, mm-hmm. the people who are performers, but they're not up on the stage, you know, with the flying Karamazov brothers or whatever. They're um, in costume walking around and, uh, you know, trying to interact with people. And there's some uh, stuff that's interesting to me here that we don't really have to get into. But, you know, connecting this uh, with um, immersive theater and particularly the kind of like negative audience reactions that come up. Uh, when, uh, the, the rules for performance get broached in that way, right? Like someone has crossed, like the, the actor has come up to me and is now talking to me and I'm supposed to just be like a spectator here. And this makes me feel awkward and embarrassed. And that makes me react in, in strong negative ways to the performer that then the performer has to like, you know, work with. Yeah. Um, there, every interview with someone from Georgia is just wonderful to me uh, <laughs> because it's like, it's almost universally uh, Georgia and Maryland become the negative examples in this book. And I think it's because she went to both of those locations, mm-hmm. um, you know, so she was able to do a lot of just observation work. Uh, but I, I think it's Georgia where the person's like, I'm okay with them, but I don't like them when they're in my face, mm-hmm. <laughs> get out of my face. And I was like, that's right. That's Georgia. <laughs> get out of my face. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah in this mud show uh-huh. i thought that was interesting 
Yeah, there's just these, guys who roll around in the mud and do pratfalls and shit. It seems like I don't really understand. Right. It's kind. Of, I mean, it's it seems like uh, you know physical and gross out humor. Like there's the one where the guy like pretends to sneeze and he's like yeah. because they they get uh, baptized at the end, right? They wash themselves off in a pond, and then like a guy picks up a bunch of pond scum and pretends to sneeze. So there's all this like you know uh, uh, virulent green shit flying out and. Uh, then and then uh, I mean, it does have the the greatest punchline like the the way the yeah. show ends is like ultimately like one of them ends up having to eat the mud. Uh, and then uh, one of the other guys says, like, you know, what's more disgusting, the fact that he ate mud or the fact that you all paid to see it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like they're funny, right? Yeah. You know, it sounds like I, I have a lot like a huge amount of respect, an unbelievable amount of respect for. Like the people who do these kinds of shows, uh, yeah. both at a Renaissance festival in a general sense, there's a, uh, you know, Nick Weiger, who was on a bonus episode recently of just King things. They did uh, on Doughboys an interview, which is probably not everyone's, uh, you know, not everyone who listens to this show and enjoy Doughboys. And this is not my like, you got to go listen to it uh, recommendation. But they did a fascinating interview, uh, although I listened to it. Um, they did a fascinating interview last year with someone who uh, is part of like a pirate show, like the Pirates of the Caribbean show. Mm. Um, and just the performer who like plays one of the knights. Mm. Maybe it's not the Pirates of the Caribbean. I was going to say the anyway. knights and the famous knights of the Caribbean. Yeah. I'm sorry, the pirates. But uh, anyway, it's like a like a, a pirate dinner theater show, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's like a three hour. You buy the thing. It's the, it's medieval times, but for pirates. Uh huh. Um, and so they inter- they like go to it and that was one episode and then they had a separate episode where they just interviewed the person who plays one of the pirates and it's like two hours of just talking to him about how he does it and how they change characters every night or you know they, they have the opportunity to um, so you have to know the whole show as mm-hmm. anyone and there's some improv in it same as this I just have I thought it was really great I always like listening to people who do that kind of thing and at the end of this episode you're gonna get a little taste of that mm-hmm. how about that it's gonna Ooh. be fun yeah um, but, uh, but anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. I liked reading this section of the book a lot. Um, and you've noted this like conservative turn thing. You want to explain that really quick? Oh yeah. So one of the guys who's in the mud show, uh, he talks about how, uh, early on, um, they kind of, you know, it wasn't like explicitly political. <laughs> they weren't like, right, uh, right. <laughs> right. They weren't like, uh, hollering about Jimmy Carter or whatever while they rolled about in the mud. Um, but there, he talks about how, you know, they could kind of count on everyone showing up to the fair being pretty liberal. Um, and mm-hmm. so when they made like slight little comments, you know, I, I'm, he doesn't get specific, but I imagine thing, you know, uh, when you see an opportunity to get like a, a real good burn in by saying just something as simple as like, dang, you must be a Republican. Right. Right. And the person going like, ha ha ha. Right. Uh, uh, th- those little things. Uh, one of these, he talks about, uh, how in the eighties, uh, like he notices in the eighties, he stopped being able to do that. Like the uh, typical fairgoer became more conservative and would get legitimately offended uh, if he, you know, poked fun at a conservative or Republican politics. Uh, and I just I think that's interesting that that's a thing that he noticed. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me, given, you know, kind of like the historical trajectories going on there. But this is also one of those moments where um, I feel like an entirely different book. Uh, could have been written like you see a slice here an entirely different book could have been written right. about like how this happened or what it means or like how people responded to it something digging very specifically and deeply into what does it mean that the uh, composition of the fair goers themselves 
became more conservative in the 80s and how does that impact like what is going on the fair more generally and so on yeah that's you know that is as far as i'm concerned that is the most fascinating kind of like sub thing resonating throughout the book which is that uh it begins with 1960s kind of hippie lefty values like ambiguous lefty values right but with no sense of militancy whatsoever um you know uh open inclusive for all whatever uh, creed desire you have and by the time we get to the 80s that is fully absorbed within like the monoculture of reaganism right mm-hmm. like it is totally cool to go to the renaissance festival and wear your american flag t-shirt which is like fine i'm not critical of you doing that right in a general sense but like one gets a sense that you in 1967 it would have been like who is that person with a crew cut mm-hmm. um and now you know just based on kind of like the the vibes right like that's that's the thing like i went to a fairly not a renaissance festival but like a um uh like a native celebration that Mm -hmm. that happens here a muskogee um celebration that happens yearly um where people from uh reservations return to the location and when people who are here uh who are muskogee um uh like do things share values, do history talks, things like that, right? The, the history and politics of that kind of thing are fraught in lots of ways and also really, like, positive in other sorts of ways, right? And the last time I went, I, I didn't manage to go this year, but I think I went last year. It's a big outdoor event. And, uh, yeah, the number of people I saw wearing Trump T-shirts who, you know, went to the, you know, indigenous celebration mm-hmm. uh, was, you know, 25%, mm-hmm. 30%, mm-hmm. something like that. And, um, so obviously very different in their, uh, you know, what you're doing at the event, but there is a way that like, if it is outside in a public event and you can buy food on a stick, like it, there is no political content anymore, you know, in terms of like what people imagine it means to go there. Right. right. Um, and that I feel like in the sixties, that was not the case. And certainly if you went to like. Uh, a racial or ethnic pride event in the 1960s that that also would have not mm-hmm. been uh you know uh, there, there's a way that like the outdoor event the big broad event the the carnival festival thing uh transformed in the past 50 years that i i really can't account for you mm-hmm. know um but certainly you can see it in all these bits and pieces throughout the whole book mm-hmm. yeah uh and then sort of, I mean, slightly opposed to that, uh, we have the next chapter, yeah. chapter four, a place yep. to be out playing at the fair. Uh, yep. there's, there's a transition just really yeah. briefly before you outline. There's a transition that happens here in chapter four where like everything before this has been about like what people make at the fair. Mm-hmm. And now almost everything is how people are at the fair. Yeah. Mm hmm. Just in a general sense. Yeah. Now we get uh, uh, specifically into people talking about like fair experiences. And these are people who aren't like (laughs) folks who went on to be famous performers on television. Right. These are people who just like hang out at the fair to this very day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, uh, we get some like accounts, like historical accounts of people who went to the fair and kind of the good experiences they had. Um, you know, uh, key here is uh, Carolyn Weathers, who is a lesbian activist uh, who talks about um, going to the fair with like, I-, I guess it was her girlfriend at the time and then like another lesbian couple and sort of uh, feeling like they could be together as lesbians there in, in kind of an open way that wasn't, uh, you know, typical of the world outside of the fair. There's like a, a really interesting anecdote where she pays for a, a roll in a hay with a lusty winch. Um, 
where like because that's a that's one of the things oh yeah right this that this event is like (laughs) what what a thing like i don't think i'm gonna go out on a limb i suspect that these don't happen at renaissance fairs today uh i don't know you don't think like a like a buxom lass is standing there at the top of a hill and and for free you can just roll in the hay with her (laughs) literally down a hill you don't think that's a thing i i I don't know i feel like i feel like with the corporatization of the fair (laughs) certain like liability restrictions get uh, uh put into place uh, uh, yeah it sounds like we're joking but explain what this thing is like literally uh it's a guy <laughs> standing on top of a hill and he's like come have a roll in a hay with this like lusty young wench and you like come up and you and the lady like lock hands and you like fall to the ground and roll down a bunch of hay like down a little hill <laughs> I think you hug. I think yeah. like the impression I got is you're like hugging each other and then you like do a big roll all the way down the hill. <laughs> and yeah, she's talking about how like that was like a like, I don't know, like a sexual awakening for her, but like an important moment of like acceptance of being like anyone can do a, a you know, a lusty roll in the hay. Right. Right. Like it like no, it doesn't matter who you are. Right. Um, and that the fair had a unique um, uh, role, you know. I was going to say unique role, but <laughs> a unique affordance uh, mm-hmm. uh, when it came to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I haven't heard of this before outside of this either. So if you're a current uh, Renaissance Fair person and you've you've experienced this, let us know. Mm-hmm. Let us know in the comments. Yeah, um, this is also the chapter where uh, the patron as a as a category gets uh, talked about. Um, you know, that's the diehard fan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh I'm just going to uh, quote here. This is from page 200. The the fair's particular usage of play with the more usual word. Uh, yeah, with you, you more usual word patron. Uh, fair workers refer to these attendees as patrons, acknowledging uh, through the coinage, the significance of these fans involvements in the construction of the fair's meaning. Uh, something that I think is super important here to like, you know, draw a big exclamation mark. Uh, next to um, mm-hmm. is the way that we're seeing here, like historically, I don't know when the term patron comes about, but clearly it's been bandied about for quite a bit at this point. Um, we're seeing this kind of elision between work and play because the, mm-hmm. the, the patrons see themselves as playing, right? They're having fun. And at the same time, uh, the fun that they are having is also performing a service to the fair itself. It, it makes it feel fuller, more lived in, um, uh, you know, it, it uh, sustains the illusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, you know, seeing this illusion of work and play or the divisions between leisure and labor, um, this is a mode con- characteristic of contemporary capitalism and like fandom culture in general. Right. Like yeah. the, the default mode of being a fan of something now is to be a patron of it. And the Renaissance Festival got there first. Yeah, we're all each other's content. Right. Uh, you know, like to put it, you know, very uh, roughly, right? I mean, like, look at Homestuck. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, you I was thinking so much out. about Homestuck through all of this. Yeah. yeah, that 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 the part of the draw from Homestuck, and you can listen to our other show, Homestuck Made This World, if you're curious. But part of the draw of that is people who are not the primary creator working in that space and doing stuff, and they're still doing it now, right? You know, mm-hmm. we just had in the Discord the other day, like a huge run of people talking about like other fan works that they find. Uh, really powerful and cool and like fun to engage with right like we're all patrons right Mm -hmm. like and that's why i was talking earlier about like ip like Mm -hmm. the ipization of the world right like in some ways like you said the the 
the Ren Fair gives, even if it doesn't set out the model, it gives a clear history for one place where this is happening. And I think it's, you know, happened in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as much as people point to, say, you know, the Bill Gates letter about, like, uh, uh, privatizing software production, right? Like, you need to pay for the software you run, which is, like, kind of a sea change moment in understanding, like, uh, uh, like freeware culture, right? Mm-hmm. I think the Ren Fair, you know, it, even if it's not the sea change moment, is a clear demarcation point of like where this stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, in a general sense, I would say that if you're curious about where the Ren Fair stuff most connects with game studies, this is the chapter. Yeah. Um, because the other one here, which is the one you were talking about a minute ago, is like um, the the play space as a place where you can be a person that, who you are not outside of that. Mm hmm. Yeah. And we get all kinds of examples of that, you know, uh, being able to, um, you know, be in non-heteronormative relationships is one, but also like the guy who's talk he's a truck driver and he talks about this is the only place he can wear tights and like, you know, like wear his um, like fun uh, vest and stuff, right. you know, and that allows him to be a kind of person who he's not. Um, a lot of connection here. And I think a really good, uh, again, you know, it's the, the Mia Consalvo, it's the, the um, CLR James, right? The absolutely puncturing the magic circle discourse right like it would be so easy to read the rin fair as like within the fairgrounds you're a person who does xyz who has certain capabilities and outside of that you don't but and some people certainly think of their life in that that way but if you read the chapter and you read what they're talking about how they understand the Ren Fair thing is entirely shot through with reality, right? Mm-hmm. And their reality, their day-to-day life is shot through with, like, desire for the fair. And some people give up their life to, like, go and become, you know, fair full-timers, essentially. Um, and so I think this is a really good chapter to kind of put pressure on some of those good old-fashioned game studies ideas that that we still kind of can't get rid of. Uh, and critically to engage with them, not just to dismiss them, but to say, well, okay, if there's something like a magic circle here, which we are on record as being unimpressed with, at least, right? Mm-hmm. If there's something like that here, then what does this tell us about it? And it's pretty clear that it's not an inside or an outside, and it's not an outside or an inside that's, that's defined by the other either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is a, a mixed method thing, uh, particularly when it comes to expenditure and political economy. It's expensive to go the Ren fair. Yeah. Yeah, we get lots of people talking about how much they've spent on garb. Mm-hmm. Like these people have spent more on garb than I don't know. I I've spent on possibly any hobby. Like the only thing that comes close in yeah. terms of like specific uh, expenditures and hobbies is like I've bought a lot of books throughout my life. I guess For sure, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, same. I I was looking because you know one person says you know I've spent over five thousand dollars and it's like. Over the course of my life, I might have spent that amount of money on, like, photography stuff, you know, and, like, trading a thing in that I had before to get some credit on the next thing, you know, so maybe the total expenditure hits more than that, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, maybe video games, I guess, yeah. too, like, slow accrual over time, but not on, like, one thing, like, four outfits to go to the Ren Fair. I mean, it's it's a pretty big expenditure, and she's very clear, too, to be like, hey, these p- people spend a lot. But they also are part of a class of people who have a lot of, you know, um, uh, expendable income. Mm-hmm. Too. Uh, and it seems like Ren Fair as an economic system might be supported, you know, in a big chunk of a way. That's something that I want to ask the person who we're going to be talking to in a little while. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, so the other sort of interesting things that show up in this chapter, uh, uh, 
in, in line with what you're talking about, uh, RE garb, uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about, say, people making their own garb, learning to make their own garb, or assim- assembling their own outfits. But of course, uh, in the modern moment, there are ways around this. You can just like purchase a pre-made outfit and you can wear that mm-hmm. um, or purchase any any number of items that are, you know, pre-made garb. Uh, and of course, there is discourse around these things, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Are you being more authentic in making your own garb? Is that like the real uh, Ren Faire experience? Um, are you like cheating somehow by buying something pre-packaged or pre-made? Again, these are conversations that happen uh, around cosplay, right? In the mm-hmm. convention mm-hmm. circuit. Like the, oh, yeah. it is the exact same kind of uh, dialogue and sort of the exact same issues, right? Like what is more authentic? What is the real experience? Uh, who is putting forth more effort? Is that effort deserved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I did a really, because we were talking about this uh, a couple of days ago, and so I was like doing a little searchy search, you know, around the the the, the uh, ecosphere, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, the the uh, video ecology around this stuff. Like, what are people talking about now? Because it's 10 years after this book came out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that if, you know, the first couple pages of YouTube results are like how to go to the Ren Fair cheaply, you know, mm-hmm. like not like the full experience, but how to like get clothing. There's a lot of thrifting stuff involved of like you know here's the kinds of clothes to look for when you're thrifting if you want to make a cosplay outfit or not uh not a cosplay outfit but a Renfair outfit but then cosplay as a term dominating this discussion too right mm-hmm. like the terminology has shifted to be in conversation with some of the other things i even looked at some tiktok stuff mm-hmm. uh and tiktok was really interesting too because a lot of it was around as a lot of tiktok content is around around like proper conduct uh-huh. you know tiktok is a disciplining form uh-huh. that tells you how you're supposed to be in the world um in in uh, often really weird ways i think uh but uh but it was a lot of like uh you know uh, though i think the one i sent you was like a, a version of the cosplay is not consent mm-hmm. thing yes. you know it was like hey if someone's in costume lots of people go in costume that doesn't mean you should you know y- that doesn't give you permission to touch them or whatever right um but there's a lot of that kind of stuff too about like how to how to get the costume together what are the terms you need to know how to approach someone you know who's also in costume uh that kind of stuff so uh, you know and that's very similar to content for cons and mm-hmm. and other kind of fantasy science fiction anime stuff so i thought it was really interesting um you know the the connections there um i you you made a lot of notes about this i didn't make a lot of notes but i thought it really uh, stuck out to me right that your uh the long section here about like body size mm-hmm. and like what is an acceptable body at the Ren Fair, I thought was pretty interesting. Basically, a lot of people, um, you know, it seems to be talking to a lot of, of, of straight people. Right. But it was like um, uh, hetero men who like a quote unquote curvy woman. Yeah. Talking about how much they love the Ren Fair, Right. Cool. And then uh, women, you know, uh, who are, uh, you know, bigger saying hey, I can go to the Ren Fair and, like, wear whatever I want. And I, like, don't feel as policed as I do in my day-to-day life. And some people, like, having very, um, you know, kind of effusive or elaborate relationships there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's th- those are uh, some of the core things that happen here uh, that essentially, right, the, the argument is that uh, there are – we live in a society that has – uh, particular standards of like conduct and dress, uh, particularly regarding your body type. What should your body look like? What does your body look like? And what does that mean you're not allowed to do or not allowed to wear? Um, 
you know, what is what is your gender and what does that mean you're allowed to wear and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. And so like that long haul trucker that you mentioned earlier, like what I, I he's he is for me the highlight of this chapter because he's the yeah. he talks a bit like the reason he likes going to the Ren Fair in between his routes is like he says, there's no way for me to like go out into the world and feel like I'm dressing up, right? He's not the sort of right, dude who like right. puts on the tuxedo and goes to the fancy restaurant and that's like his fancy night out. Um, you know, regardless of whether or not that would even be a thing he's interested in, uh, right. like, but he likes going to the Ren Fair and being able to like have his different outfits that for him, like that's dressing up, right? That's like putting on the Ritz. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, I, I always like to read a thing where, uh, you know, men can express how the cis heteropatriarchy uh, traps them. Yeah, right. Because that's that's a thing. You know, we've talked about it on the show many times. We've talked about it on, on uh, all of our shows. I think at some point, right? Like it is a trapping function. It is a disciplining, uh, violent function of the world that we live in, and it, it affects everyone, right? And there, there are not a huge number of opportunities in this type of book to hear like how men feel about that, particularly because we are strongly discouraged from ever talking about it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, because of all the different ways that cis heteropatriarchy hits everyone. Right. Um, and the, the, one of the ways that hits men in particular is like discursively, right. You just can't speak it to speak. It is to, to be a, you know, a horror in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I really liked that too. I thought that really stuck out of mm-hmm. how he feels essentially like railroaded in most of his life mm-hmm. um, around his his dress. Oh, and then he talks about uh, on the issue of like body size, right? Or like women's bodies. Mm-hmm. He, and then he starts talking about it. He's like, yeah, and you know, I, and, and she, she makes a point in like recounting this conversation with him that he is right. just being like placid, serenely frank, right? He, <laughs> right. he, he is just right. like telling her and he's like, you know, and I like a bigger woman. And, you know, like I like the way that my wife gets to dress at the Ren Fair. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. It's wonderful. Um, and, and sort of uh, along with this, there is uh, here um, we get a little bit of this uh, in, in all the chapters that follow. But here there's like a, a you know, mention of how uh, the Ren Fair appears to be in general place where like uh, uh that tolerance and acceptance of like queer people and like openly queer people and like queer relationships, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like it's, it's kind of normal there. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we trace through the ways that, um, like Renfair culture overlaps with say BDSM culture because, Hey, where are you going to find someone who's going to make some very specific leather goods for you? Right. Uh, where are people going to have, uh, the skills or sort of the knowledge sets to do that sort of thing? Um, uh, along with, uh, you know, uh, uh, some very brief mentions of like, uh, dressing in drag, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, but then also like polyamory, right? Like mm-hmm. sort of multiple, po- uh, uh, partner like arrangements and, uh, those being more common or at least, you know, uh, anecdotally more common, uh, within the context of the Ren Fair to the degree that like, you know, that's a joke that I've heard, right? Is like, if you want to <laughs> find some people who are polyamorous, go to the Ren Fair and that shows up here. Right. Right. Um, and I wonder how much that uh, I mean, I've heard that same joke, but for anime conventions, <laughs> right. right? Like the, the same joke. Right. So uh, uh, and uh, probably no one's throwing a bucket at you, you know, <laughs> probably at, at, the, at the Ren Fair. So, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I also love the uh, uh, you know, like that. There's like a bunch of like inner community stereotypes about like who who at the fair is what, you know, like what roles do they play mm-hmm. uh, like in the festival itself? Uh, you know, that tells you about that. There, there's some re- good recounting here of like 
the I guess like queer folklore right, right. of the mm-hmm. Rin Festival, uh, which I which I like. Right, it's something like I, I can't remember how it gets phrased, but it's something like uh, uh, you know, it's, how do you find the gayest man at the Rin Fair? Well, he's going to be playing the jester. That's not exactly right, right, right. but it's that sort of thing, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And there's a couple of these, right? Um, um, uh, and then there's also interviews with uh, patrons of color, which is interesting because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, to your point, what you were saying about kind of the logic of the magic circle, which is like latent here in the way that the fair can be thought about or talked about as kind of this like autonomous space, right? This space mm-hmm. that is set aside from everyday life. Um, these patrons are particularly great examples of how that's not the case because uh, they like they can't not they can't not be conscious of their race uh, moving right. into this space. And so when they're designing their outfits, like they are doing so um, in dialogue, knowingly in dialogue with sort of um, implicit uh, possible claims that like, oh, this isn't historically accurate. You shouldn't be here or it shouldn't look like this. Um so, you know, we have uh, a guy who talks, he, he um, plays a Moor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like a, a black man who plays a Moor. And that's kind of like his role, right? To show that like, you know, and this is true, right? Like, it is not like uh, uh, the British Isles had not heard of uh, uh, people with dark skin. Like they knew very well right. that they existed yeah. and they were there, right? They were living in the cities uh, so much so yeah. that they had to, that Queen Elizabeth passed a law saying that there are too many uh, Moors in the country. We need to get rid of them, right? Hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, that that's there. There's this guy, the, the Senegalese guy, which is pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just imagining the life trajectory that takes you from Senegalese to like he's like living in Mississippi and he's like working as an auto mechanic or something. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yep. Uh, and he loves going to the Ren Fair. There's a, a, a girl named Alice. Uh, she is described as uh, South Asian. Um, and she's she does kind of like steampunky sort of stuff, right? She, her, mm-hmm. her understanding of what she's doing with Garb at the Ren Fair is very involved in um, uh, kind of the, uh, you know, post-colonial or like thinking about empire and the aesthetics and logics of empire. Uh, and mm-hmm. then there's like a, a brief mention of... Uh, uh, at one fair, a black man wandering around shirtless and in chains. Yeah, and she like asks him, like, "What's up with that?" He he is dressed as someone who is enslaved, mm-hmm. um, purposefully. Yes, you know, to 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 put pressure on the thing. And and it seems like she doesn't recount exactly what he said, but it seems like he gives a pretty curt response, which is like, "Yeah, I'm I. This is on purpose. I'm not, you know, doing that." And and it is uh, interesting to me that that you know, there's a whole genre of people who do performances like that. That's a really sharp one in terms of like what's going on here. But you know, there are, and I think an appropriate one. Like I think that that's a, 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 a you know, he he made that choice, and uh, I think it does put pressure on that historical fantasy that mm-hmm. that a lot of people have. Um, but, you know, that that's a common thing now in, in terms of, like, YouTube content, right? Of, like, we, uh, you know, not we, but people, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like, crashing Civil War reenactment mm-hmm. stuff as, you know, enslaved uh, people or uh, a different version of that, right? But, but you know, I would say less political, but just as poking fun at the thing, right? Is, like, showing up to the Ren Fair in the Star Trek costume, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not poking holes in the... the um, 
the historical fantasy, but it's poking holes in like the seriousness of the event or whatever. Right. Like, and I like that. I like that this guy shows up. And he's like, all right, if you're going to take this seriously and make me say prithy and the, and all this shit, right. Well, let's take it seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that playing by the rules there, I think is, is pretty fascinating. Um, and, uh, uh, <laughs> do, do we want to talk about, uh, the next one, right. Which I think for fair goers, this might be considered this kind of like coming and poking holes in the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Or saying like, I'm holding a mirror up to you. These are the values that you're espousing. That might be considered being a hater, mm-hmm. which gets its whole, uh, its own chapter. Yeah. Chapter five. Yeah. Uh, we talk about uh, like we, we, this chapter begins. It's called every, every day is gay day here. Uh, yeah. Hating the fair. And I was like, Oh, another chapter. Yeah. Like, you know, another like uh, about how you uh, get to be yourself at the fair. Okay, but no, no, that's not what it's about. No, uh, uh, we begin with a discussion of anti fandom, uh, which I talked about over on Homestuck Made This World. And in fact, uh, Mm -hmm. citing the work of Jonathan Gray, who is someone I cited over on Homestuck Made This World, kind of, uh, I think, maybe one of the first people to um, uh, publish standalone articles on anti fandom as a phenomenon. uh, you know, what is it uh, about people who dislike fairs? And uh, to be clear, also, like, I think maybe the way that I was introduced to fairs through popular culture um, had an element of this. Right. When you encounter mm-hmm. like the Renaissance oh, yeah. fair in your sitcom episode about it, there's always a joke about whoever, like whatever type of person is going to the Renaissance fair. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, LARP has largely, I think, replaced this or become a coterminous with it. Yes, right? like, I think so. And, and we got a bunch of comedy movies in the early 2000s that were about like Ren Fair slash uh, LARPy people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a David Wayne movie about it. Yes, I think, that's but, a, yeah. I like that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I like I like every David Wayne movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, uh, so, you know, basically, uh, digging down into like, who are these people who are kind of like Renaissance fair haters? And this is like people Mm -hmm. who show up at the Renaissance fair to hate it, but also people who like shit talk the Renaissance fair online and blog comments and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it's also a pretty widely drawn target because I guess I'm a hater. I guess. Yeah. Like, and I don't, I don't mean to be like, (laughs) I, I think Renaissance fairs are fine and cool. I just, I don't really like going to them and they make me uncomfortable Mm because I don't like when people like perform a thing in front of me. It makes me physically uncomfortable. Um, but apparently that makes me a hater. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I guess that's this is my Caliborn reveal. <laughs> I've been a Ren Fair, I guess, hater. I'm, I'm being interpolated as a Ren Fair hater, I guess, mm-hmm. despite respecting it and enjoying it and uh, thinking it's fine, but not for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, as I said on Homestuck Made This World, I think while I think these kinds of like divisions between fandom and anti fandom are useful, I also think they have uh, certain drawbacks, which is that they're that's it's Manichaean, right? It, it flattens right. out like uh, a wide variety of human response that might not be like hostile or hateful, um, but is critical and critical for like particular reasons that maybe at least need to be considered. Um mm-hmm. And I also think it's really interesting how this book kind of like just introduces the concept of fandom lickety split and doesn't really unpack it. Um, yeah. Right. It's yeah. just like introduced as kind of a, a, a thing that we're all kind of aware of. And, and uh, you know, we don't have to deal much more with it that way. Um, uh, but one of the things that this chapter ends up doing is kind of connecting uh, like the rhetoric of Ren Fair hatred today to like the moral panics uh, that accompanied the first Ren Fair in the 60s. Uh and, you know, this is I not I don't think this is ill advised because, 
you can only read so many comments on the internet about people talking about how the the Ren Fair is full of a bunch of like uh, hippies and men in tights, right? Uh, right. To not see, <laughs> the, yeah, like, the most sanitized terms, right, 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 <laughs> from what they're actually saying, right, <laughs> right. Uh, but not to see like, oh, yeah, no, this is uh, like, I mean, just the the basic anti-hippie sentiment of the 60s, along with an implicit like anti-communist kind of thing, uh, mm-hmm. along with like the homophobia of like, oh, these men are in tights. Like, uh, that's actually the previous chapter where that gets discussed most frequently, right, about uh, the men in tights uh, uh, cliche as um, a way for uh, people expressing like their discomfort with like the the non-traditional presentations of masculinity you might encounter at the renaissance fair um uh so yeah uh you know that all of there's a lot of like uh the other one of course is uh uh all these women who have disgusting bodies who are wearing clothes that are too revealing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the observation that Ruben makes is that here in the previous chapter, we saw all of the things that people who really like the fair, like about the fair, the things that they think are liberatory and empowering. It turns mm-hmm. out many of the Renaissance fair haters uh, seem to hate the fair for precisely those same reasons. Right. Right. Which is not surprising, right? These are people who, um, I think, knowingly or not, uh, are kind of uh, ideologically positioning themselves on the opposite end of a spectrum here. Uh, right. She talks about how, like, the the haters that she finds at Ren Fairs uh, are very eager to talk about what they hate about the Ren Fair and tell her everything mm-hmm. um, that, that they have trouble with. Uh, but they also don't really seem to know the history of the things that they are saying, which, you know, yeah. I guess checks out. Like, yeah. Wow, a right winger being uninformed? Caller me surprised. Um, well, yeah, I mean that's that's part of the deal, right? Like, and the uh, the way it works too. If you're reading the comments too, there, there's a way that Ruben I think gives more theory to the the form that it needs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's clear they just don't like fat people. Yeah, they don't like women who uh, are not subservient. They don't like uh, people with any kind of politics that's not the far right. I mean, she in some ways she gets to really cherry pick the examples here, where it's just like. I promise you, yeah, if I went to a white supremacist forum and started digging around, I could also find some very choice uh, quotes here. And I don't think she's cherry picking, you know, in a big, big broad sense. I'm sure that this is like the normal form of of being a hater here. Right. But it's like it's just very clear to me that these are like somewhere in between actual cultural conservatives and and channers. Yeah, right? And right. who are just like spouting stereotypes of this the shit that they either don't know about or don't care enough to be curious enough about. And uh, they just get on the internet to complain. Right. Like, right, right, right. Uh, That's, yeah. In curiosity yeah. is a virtue for a person like this. Yeah. And, and the thing to me is like, I, I actually really think that this is a probably my least favorite chapter, not in terms of like argument, which is really helpful, right? Obviously this thing is defined by the people who don't like it as much as it is the people who like it. But the fact that it goes from uh, in-depth interviews extensive in-depth interviews and then uh um observations to a few and then then in just chapter it's like a few observations and then a lot of online comment reading Mm -hmm. without really understanding that those are very different kind of discursive formations right uh to me is like okay well fine but i can literally i can do this operation for any media object on the planet Mm -hmm. right what does it get me? Well, it tells me that there are a bunch of people who are incurious and who spend their time being mad about a thing. But it doesn't really tell me what the qualities of those things are or how they live in the world. The most interesting part of this chapter for me was when she said, 
when I tried to interview some people, they thought I might be a hater. Mm -hmm. And so they wouldn't talk to me. That to me is fascinating. Mm -hmm. What's what is the immune response of fair goers to where uh, they think you being curious about the thing might just be you being an asshole, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's notable to me that there's an inside outside function there. Um, But you know, yeah. what can you do? I, I understand how she gets to this chapter, but this is to me, was like the thinnest yeah. uh, in terms of what I was interested in. Yeah, it, it mainly boils down to like there are people who hate the fair and they hate it in very similar terms to people who hated the fair, you know, 60 years ago. Um, right. And and they're they are they hate it in similar terms to the way that people hate other people, which is like mm-hmm. right. Uh, race, class, ability, fatness, mm-hmm. gender. Yep. Uh, all those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, th- this appears to be just an epiphenomenon of a very common online discourse and not a unique version of that, which is why the move to like reading forums to me is like, all right, well, it, I think there needed to be a broader like conceptual reckoning here of like, what do you get when you just read people wallowing in filth all day mm-hmm. right, <laughs> and not being in the world with the people that they hate? Right. Um, uh, because I actually like that, which is like overhearing people complain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, or just talking to people who are complaining. That's actually interesting. Yeah, who is the person who is like, I fucking hate this fair. I'm gonna go spend seven and a half hours at it. Right, <laughs> like, like that is an anti fan. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like that, that actually is someone who's spending their day doing the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think those conversations could have been a lot more interesting, especially if those people got pressured. Like, well, how many renters have you been to? Is this your first one? Like. <laughs> Right. Right. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. What's going on here? Uh, and then more to what you're talking about, you know, the, the most uh, peaking example of like the the immune response or the autoimmune response to me was the woman who I think was going to be interviewed for this book and then mm-hmm, uh, yeah. got the table of contents and saw the title of this chapter and then stonewalled Ruben because yeah. like the very fact that there was going to be a chapter about like the fair haters uh, mm-hmm. sent some sort of flag to to that woman. Yeah, and it's interesting too that like, I the the power of the rest of the book is talking to human beings, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not just like trying to to kind of like hammer on this, but you know, so the first the first person who talked to me about going to Renaissance Fair because they liked going to it was a dude who was a six foot five, heavily pierced, dyed by or no, he didn't have dyed black hair, just like jet black hair, metalhead. Who, you know, weighed like 275 probably, right? Mm-hmm. Like just this hulking dude who dressed like that all the time and had like the most elaborate set of metal T-shirts I've ever seen in my life, right? Mm-hmm. Of, like tour shirts and all that kind of shit, right? And it's like if you walked around and saw that guy having been at the metal fair or not the metal <laughs> fair, although I'll go to that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm interested in that uh, a lot. Uh, you know, you might have some and like even seeing him complaining about it. Right. You might have like assumptions about his investment that might be dispersed by looking at it. He's he's a person who would never in a million years dress up for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was heavily involved in like enjoying the thing. Right. And it's just I don't know. Um, complaint comes from a lot of places mm-hmm. and sometimes with familiarity. Mm-hmm. Uh- I don't know. Uh, so then we get to the final chapter, uh, chapter six. This is Hard Day's Night, and this is just a huge overview of the ways that uh, the Ren Fair shows up in other aspects of popular culture, in television, in uh, films, in uh, various types of books, um, in fantasy fiction, uh, in young adult fiction, uh, in children's literature, 
in romance literature, in mystery uh, fiction. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like just all the different ways that the Ren Fair might show up. Um, and, I, you know, it is what it is, I think, just because it turns out that the Ren Fair is a plot device in all these things that accomplishes various ends. Um, and they're all yeah, sort of connected to all the stuff we've talked about thus far. But uh, it's just going to vary very much from uh, genre to genre and object to object. Yeah, I don't think this chapter should be in the book. Mm. I, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I don't think, like, it should never have been written or something. But, like, it doesn't really fit with the rest of the book. It's a weird way of getting to a conclusion. Um, it feels like it's a part of a different project in some ways. Because the, it really is, like, how does the Rin Fair serve as a rhetorical device mm -hmm. within genre? Right. And, like, if you open that door, you need to reconcile the fact that, that the Rin Fair is not... It's a progenitor of genre in some ways, right? Like in the sense that Ren Fair show up in other things, but it is downstream from genre, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's downstream, uh, especially uh, in genre transformations that happen in real time, right? Like, the reason that a Ren Fair in 2023 is different from a Ren Fair in 1967 is not just that, like, time happened, right? And like, Ruben knows this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it's clear, but it, it, but it is that, like, we're part of the circuit of culture, you know, not, not, not to be all cultural studies about it. And like the explosion of fantasy literature since the 1960s has changed what people want to do at a Ren fair and what they're doing it for. I, I think I sent you, Oh, I sent you screen caps from it, uh, but I didn't send you the video of like, I think it was one in New York. Uh, and it's, it's like, it was from like a big YouTube channel going there. And there were like stormtroopers that were there in fantasy car, right? <laughs> like behind like Queen Amidala. Right? right. And it was like, well, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, that's Rin culture. That's Rin fair culture in this moment right now. Right. Uh, I think you got to like write about that. <laughs> like in my mind, that seems more pressing or more interesting. And that's the door that gets opened up here. Right. Like, if it is a part of genre, then how does that impact the actual place you go? That's a more interesting question to me than like, how does it show up in a bunch of romance novels I'll never read? Which is interesting, but not really, I think, a, a conclusion to this work in this book. Right. Oh, the other great one that you sent me. Sorry, I was just like reviewing these. Sure. In addition to the Stormtrooper one, there's the one that's like a whole bunch of people. Uh, I, I would guess that they're like portraying fairies, right? They've got like wings mm -hmm. and like these really like wild headdresses that they're wearing. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, and then yes. there's just a little boy dressed as a cowboy. <laughs> like standing <laughs> yes. with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great too. It's like a really to me that was like that is a Ren Fair to me, right? right? Where it's like people come because of like a broader sense, and she says this many times, right? A broader sense of like medieval and fantasy, um, and like dressing up as a part of it. And it kind of it seems like based on looking at videos of you know from the past ten years, which I did do quite a bit of, just to get a sense of like what's happening. It, it's not people wearing, you know, historically accurate clothing, at least not in the things that I'm seeing the most video of. Mm -hmm. There's a kid dressed as a cowboy here, and he is not out of sync with the other people. Right. <laughs> He's having a good time as much as anyone else is. Right. And uh, and it's clear that it was like, hey, we're going to dress up. What do you want to dress up as? And this little kid was like, I'm going to be a fucking cowboy. <laughs> right, right. Like, like all genres are one at the Ren Fair now. Right, right. And so it's like, yeah, yeah if, if you bring in... There's a trouble to me of if you bring in, all right, here's the representational function of like media, 
Well, <laughs> like, what is the more interesting question to me here? The fact that you did a, like a really extensive and, and good, like, I, I'm not complaining about the chapter as itself. It's really good. It's a solid chapter. There's a, a, a good bibliography of the rhetorical ways that Ren Fairs are deployed to get something out of people in fiction. Mm-hmm. But that is not what I think, like, this book leans itself toward at the end, although there is a wonderful um, Knight Riders uh, reference yes. here. Yes, like George Romero's Knight yeah. Riders. The range touch of verse again, continues to grow. <laughs> it does. Uh, it, she she fails to mention that Knight Riders is the, is the film debut of Stephen King. Huge oversight. That's right. Mo- Huge oversight, and that's why the book gets yeah. one star. <laughs> More hurtful to me than the fact that in talking about all these pop culture Ren Fairs, she does not talk about the episode of Home Movies, where again, like to what we were saying, the Ren Fair and the science fiction convention happen on the same day and then go to war with each other. Right. Maybe that's the show we do. Maybe we do the Home Movies show. <laughs> oh. Where we just watch every episode of Home Movies. Uh. Overall... And then it ends with a description of Ron Patterson's funeral that that occurs here and like the values that Ron Patterson had and things like that. And I don't quite know what to do with that either. It feels like this book needed a conclusion in some way. And there are two different chapters that get smashed together here mm-hmm. um, that I don't quite know what to do with. But um, overall, I, I, I enjoyed reading this book. I had a great time reading it. Um, I, I thought it was cool, I think. But I will say uh, in a general sense that I think that 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 chapter four that we talked about, uh, if you wanted to teach a part of it or if you just wanted to read like one chapter that gives you a good sense of what how the book does the thing that it does. um, I think chapter four is a really good place to go for that. Yep. Yep. I agree. I I really like this. As I said, it gave me um, even though I said there aren't like specific tools here that I'm picking out. It's not that type of book Mm -hmm. where like Ruben has introduced a kind of like hermeneutic principle that's uh, uh, going to unlock like uh, uh, all this other stuff for me. Um, mm-hmm. the very fact that this history has been assembled and kind of like these stories have been put together, um, in this way is useful, uh, because it allows me to compare like other things that I am in, uh, like am interested in researching and like, you know, work with like, a- again, like I thought about Homestuck and the, like, how do you produce a fan community so many times right. throughout this whole thing? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really cool stuff here, too, about like cinematic reenactment and physical reenactment and like the notion of uh, the quote here is making history come alive that happened in chapter four, too, that uh, working on the Assassin's Creed book, I was like, oh, I got to come back to this because these are some interesting claims about like, what does it mean to live history or live a fantasy of history, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, that those books are a part of. So I think that, you know, even if you're not interested in the the historical part, well, uh, I guess two things. If you're interested in the historical part and probably if you wanted to do research on like American LARP, I think that there's a lot of uh, intersection here with like the assumptions that are coming into the 60s with the emergence of the of the thing. I think probably if you wanted another story uh, or a concurrent story about both the new games movement or like Californian ideology, those first couple chapters are pretty interesting uh, for understanding the kind of granularity of what's happening in california during the 60s uh and thinking about like how culture moves which you know new games was interested in and the californian ideology essay uh an idea kind of captures Mm -hmm. explains how those things were captured um yeah i thought it was great um well right now we're gonna move into an interview 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 it's gonna be recorded at a different moment so uh here we go we're doing an interview as part of this uh, episode. I am Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Mm-hmm. Hi. And with us this time is David. 
Hello. Who uh, has been my best friend for 20 years. That's Something right. Like that. That's right. Something close. Best man at my wedding. Yeah, dude. You know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, World of Warcraft aficionado. No, I'm saying just a little bit. Just, just a little, little bit. Just, not, not just a little good. bit. But also, little bit. Uh, notably, uh, Renaissance Fair, Maryland Renaissance Festival. Maryland. Yeah. yeah. Which is one of the big ones. We talked about in the book a little bit, David, that uh, which you you have not read because I told you you didn't need to prep anything for this interview. Uh, but but one of the things we talked about, maybe we mentioned a little bit in the episode, but like the Maryland is like one of the big ones. And maybe maybe Correct. I didn't know that as much because you've told me that before, but I didn't realize like in the book, it's like, yeah, there's like one in Wisconsin that's really big. There's one in Texas that's really big. There's a couple in California, yep. but like East Coast. The uh, Georgia and Maryland are like the two big ones, and Maryland's the bigger one. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you've you spent a few years doing that. You're a professional blacksmith. That's like the thing you do now. And I, you kind of got started at that a little bit at the fair, and a little bit after that. So yeah. So and just to intro it, tell us how you got involved in the Maryland fair. Tell us what it was like. How long you did it? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So yeah. So. To get to the fair, uh, there was a little bit of a, a little backstory. So I worked at a, at a summer camp. I still do actually work at a summer camp teaching kids how to blacksmith, and that was back in like 2014. That was my first year at that summer camp. Um, that's where I met Tommy, and he's important because he leads me to the mm-hmm. fair eventually. So Tommy um, teaches me how to blacksmith, teaches me the trade. Uh, we become really good friends. So Tommy is from Maryland. He's from Maryland originally. He grows up going to the Maryland Ren Fair, right? He lives. Uh, he's from Frederick, Maryland, mm-hmm. um, and the Maryland Ren Fair is in um, near Annapolis, Crownsville area. So he, you know, he goes up going to the fair, and he grows up kind of idolizing these people that work at the fair. So flash forward, you know, he teaches me how to blacksmith. We become really good friends. He gets his opportunity to apprentice at the fair, and this is kind of. This is kind of his story, mm-hmm. right? He gets the opportunity to apprentice for a guy named uh, William, William Lloyd, who does carving at the fair. He does like uh, really cool carvings into bones and stuff. Because yeah, I'm uh, like I'm sure in the book, you know, they go over like just so many people, so much, so much talent mm-hmm. at these fairs. Yeah, there's a whole chapter uh, so on like crafting at the fair. Yeah, 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 it's it's pretty wild, man. So the so yeah, so so, so Tommy gets in that way. That's his in. Mm-hmm. He gets in there, and he um, eventually. You know, Tommy's real trade is blacksmithing, right? But he ends up apprenticing under William. That's how he gets to know the crowd. That's how he gets to know just the community at the at the Maryland Ren Fair. He pretty much since like since I met him, he was always somehow involved with going back to the fair or trying to apprentice and just getting in there, mm-hmm. right? So it wasn't until 2018 uh, that he got his shot at taking over the blacksmithing booth because the blacksmith that was there um, at the time was kind of going downhill. So anyway, so Tommy gets Tommy gets a shot, right? Mm-hmm. He applies to to be uh, one of the Smiths, and he gets it. He he applies. He's like he's in the competition with another dude, um, but Tommy gets mm-hmm. it. So uh, Tommy gets the booth, and he reaches out to me, and he says, "Hey, man," because at this point we've worked worked together at the at the summer camp for like three summers at this point, where we're kind of like you know back to back. We're like where like I'm running the shop, he's running the shop. He's I'm kind of his apprentice at this point um, during the summer, and we yeah he just he just shoots me an invite. He just straight up says, "Hey man, I got this opportunity to run the booth. 
uh, at the Maryland Ren Fair. I know nothing about Ren Fair. I know nothing about the the, the, the culture, the environment, <laughs> right. and I I uh, I just I just say yeah, man, let's do it, let's send it. So C- can I clarify mm-hmm. something? Yeah. Have you heard of Ren Fairs at least? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, yeah. just making sure, just making <laughs> you, sure. All right. If you had gone through all of the World of Warcraft stuff without running into the concept of a Ren Fair, I felt like that would have been remarkable. <laughs> well, the, no, for and sure. You, like, you're aware of, like, the the Georgia one, but I don't think you'd gone at that point. Had you had you gone to the Georgia Ren Fair before? No, okay. no, not at that right, point. Gotcha. Right, exactly. Right. No, exactly. So, it was, so, yeah, so I just I never, never really knew, like, didn't really know, the, like, the mechanics of it. Didn't really know didn't understand like the the culture the 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 garbing up you know mm-hmm. the the acting the the all the all the stuff that goes into it so yeah that's how i ended up at the fair tommy just reached out 2018 we we worked at camp one that summer and literally right after the summer ended in kind of uh early august uh we i just packed up my things and went up to maryland and that's how i started that's how that was my end to the maryland Ren fair. and so you did it three summers in a row is that true Correct. Okay, gotcha. So, so you did that, and so you were you're like eighteen, nineteen, twenty then. Uh, well, twenty. Oh, it didn't happen. Twenty didn't, mm-hmm. didn't happen. Twenty right. didn't happen. Yeah. So eighteen, nineteen, so twenty. So I did. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Well, uh, can you just talk about like what it's uh, just run us through like what it's like to be there? Like, what's one day at the fair? I guess is what I'm asking. You during the fair, right? During like during the day, yeah, like, yeah. Dur- during like, the fair, like, the, like take the, me from waking up and how you wake up all the way to going to bed. To the like during the weekend or during just kind of like and and during the week when we're just getting oh, stuff yeah, ready. Give us both because I think in the book there's not a clean distinction between those two things. And from what you've mm-hmm. told me before, there is a clean distinction between those things. Like the week and the weekend are very different for you. Right. Yeah. yeah. So 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 during the week, so like I guess during the week is um, so the fair runs the Maryland Ren Fair runs. Um, Saturday, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like, that's kind of like where, 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 where like the action is, right? That's kind of like the, where we're all, we're all getting ready for the weekend. Right. Uh, so usually let's see. So we'll start with like the week, like the preparation mm-hmm. week. So Tommy, Tommy and I developed a system where we took, we would take Monday off cause that's our weekend from, from the, you know, from the week, yeah. um, from the work week essentially. And so for Tuesday, from pretty much from waking up on Tuesday, uh, I actually I got to live on site one year, and I lived in a tent <laughs> in the in the tent city in the in the Renfair tent city, which was uh, pretty sweet actually. I got to kind of live in the back where everyone else was staying, so I got to kind of hop around and meet a bunch of cool uh, cool people that they were they were just you know they just did everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like what's the bathroom situation and, like? So the Ren so the Maryland Renfair um, is actually one of the nicer ones. Mm. So the Maryland Renfair, along with having kind of porta potties stationed in Tent City. They also have um, <clears throat> like actual bathroom facilities mm. with like showers and you know hot water, <laughs> hot water. <laughs> like it actually has. So the Maryland Ren Fair, I can I can at least say that they have the nicer facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, there there is some horror, horror stories of other fairs, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I can't I can't you know I can't vouch for that. Right. I can't attest right. to that. Um, but yeah, so the Maryland Ren Fair is good. So we have showers, we have everything. Um, it's just a bit of a walk away. So I wake up. Probably around where Tommy and I are waking up. Probably around eight, eight, nine. Mm-hmm. Um, then we head to the head to the to our booth. So our booth is actually an active shop as well, because that's the at the Maryland Ren Fair. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the gimmick. We are 
during the week, which we'll get to is, uh, I mean, during the weekend, during the fair days, uh, we'll get, we'll get mm-hmm. there. That's when we're like doing the shows, doing demos, but during the week we're still there mm-hmm. and we're just making either like small improvements to the display area. We're making small improvements to the shop or we're just, and we're really, we're just forging things for the weekend. Right. So we have, um, stuff that we have, we have small little things that we sell kind of like little trade knives, um, little dice, um, kind of big kind of like small projects like like pendants necklaces these are the things that we we just kind of make that we have a ton of mm-hmm. right so that's kind of me like with with Tommy being the main guy at the booth and he himself is a pretty well established bladesmith uh that's like the big appeal like everyone wants blades that's i'm telling you man it's like um it, like like bladesmithing is uh, is kind of become like like people people think blacksmith it's almost immediately goes to cool can you make a knife right. that's just kind of like the the vibe right now that's just kind of where, where everyone's doing what everybody wants at least so tommy takes it upon himself to work on the bigger projects usually stuff that has been commissioned uh to him from the weekend and i kind of just was the grunt and just made all of like the small little things that would sell from anywhere from like 10 to 30 dollars mm-hmm. right just like the pendants and necklaces earrings so that was kind of our day it literally i went from sun up which was nine o'clock for me some nine o'clock into <laughs> two hours into after like the, the sun comes out. <laughs> yeah yeah that was that was it so sun, all the way up until 12 1 2 in the morning mm. we um that's like when we were like early in the fair we were very we we're very energetic we we're very spry we we're very like okay we gotta get we gotta get up we gotta get up on stock right so um <clears throat> it doesn't last long uh also i think after our first year there we were so just like we were just so excited to be there that we we would just start we would start you know banging hammers up until midnight um and later but what we didn't realize what we weren't considerate of was the other people that stay at the fair <laughs> other the other people mm. that uh yeah that work there they would they start complaining that we were just making way too much noise yeah. so so yeah so pretty much the yeah the ground that's kind of it just kind of hung out in the grounds we'd we'd buy like um our own food right because mm-hmm. at crownsville where the fair is we were still kind of a ways away from going into town so we just kind of ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and like hot dogs and just whatever like small like small little stuff like that like straight up the worst diet ever we just because we just didn't want to leave the campgrounds right. we just wanted to stay there and work all day so yeah cool so so that's like all the way through the week and then saturday morning rolls around what what is that what's what's different about the weekend or like because you you just mentioned like all kinds of stuff that i think people are probably interested in you called doing the thing like blacksmithing you called doing the show yeah, right, so like, yeah, t- yeah. Tell yeah, me was... about that. Like, I guess my first question about that specifically is: Do you talk in like the lingo? Like, are you a pretty well met? Are you one of those guys? I I did not. Okay. Um, we so I, I, this this is weird. So are you this in is, the garb? Are this... you because people can't see you, but you're like a you're like a burly dude, and especially like oh, you like you know thanks man well, thank you yeah but you know you're a big guy you lift <laughs> weights and, and back then you were like really lifting weights right like thank you that yeah, was when yeah. you would show up to my house uh you know people know that i don't eat meat and you would show up to my house with like like nine pre-cooked chicken breasts <laughs> and that's like all meal, you can meal eat. prep yeah meal prep yeah you were like into that and so you know are you like in a low-cut shirt you know like sweaty all day what i guess to tell me how you're talking how you're engaging with people how you're dressed give me give me the whole david visual yeah 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 Sweet. so so yeah so definitely i, I garb up that is uh that's mandatory mm-hmm. you do have to garb up if you're if you're selling at, at you know if you're working there you have to garb up regardless the 
cool thing about the Maryland Ren Fair, at least for the booth vendors, um, we it was kind of optional whether or not we wanted to partake in the kind of role playing aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't quite because, as you know, like I kind of came in. Tommy just invited me. He just like, and I, I knew nothing about kind of the culture or the atmosphere. <laughs> I didn't have any prepped lines. I didn't have right. any. I didn't. I didn't really know the lingo. I didn't really know the. I didn't know the. I didn't have a script to read off of. So for me, I was just very just. Hey, how's it going? I was very just just kind of my normal charismatic self. Just like, how's it going, guys? What's up? This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have because I have the background in teaching kids how to blacksmith. I pretty much just ripped my my like usual script and teaching pattern from that like mm-hmm. from teaching kids how to blacksmith and i and then i just was kind of like teaching the crowd how to blacksmith so mm. so at other rent fairs they don't really have this but at the at the maryland rent fair it was it's really cool because our booth was kind of a big open space um so big open space that we have our forge and our anvil where everyone can kind of see us right mm-hmm. and that's that so that's the show so saturday morning we wake up, we get the display booth ready, we get the display tables ready. We have a salesperson, so we have um, people that come in to help us that just work the weekends, right? Like mm-hmm. Tommy and I are there all week and the weekends, but we have usually a sales or person or two, mm-hmm. uh, depending on who. It just depends. Tommy was always in charge of choosing who it was. So it's just like uh, someone to check people out, like after they've made their choice or talked to you or whatever. It's just like someone running a credit card. Correct, correct. Yeah. But but there was also they were also in charge of kind of being um the booths kind of uh like like pr person kind of like uh, like pe- people would come up look at our merchandise and they would they would know everything that we made they would they would they would familiarize themselves with the merchandise they would be like they'd be able to say like oh yeah this knife was made by david or this mm. knife was made by tommy mm. um this was this was this this was this and so we had a really cool uh fortunately for us we always had really cool people that kind of knew our our, our our um kind of what we were doing and stuff so that was their job. So Tommy and I solely focused on kind of the main event, which was we would trade off on doing demos because people would just crowd us. We'd have like hundreds of people crowd our booth, um, and we had a nice little space around our our, our anvil around our. It was it was former. It was kind of like a big square, and we still had like anywhere from I would say ten ten feet mm-hmm. around us where. It was a nice space. It was a nice barrier, right? Mm-hmm. So we so we had we were just walking around. Um, we'd light up the forge. <clears throat> it was a cool forge. So it was so everyone always knew when we were when the show had start was starting because right. we just like start you know blowing a bunch of smoke everywhere. Um, we got very dirty. So <laughs> okay. So anyway, it's kind of sidetracked there. But so yeah. So starting with the garb. Yeah, I was in garb, full garb. I wore my my boots. I wore I wore just normal boots because I I couldn't find in time like any kind of ren fair looking boots i wore my normal boots <clears throat> but i did put like canvas over them to, to make them look more kind of like to the time period and yeah i wore like um <clears throat> i wore like just normal cotton pants that looked pretty rugged kind of like some black cotton pants um i would i tied some um what is it, it was like some some uh, some cotton some cloth like a scarf around my waist to kind of look, uh, trying to see, so I could paint this picture for you. Uh-huh. To kind of look you, like super it, beat up. In my mind, you look like a pirate mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. That, that's <laughs> definitely the vibe. Okay. Yeah, definitely, definitely was going for that. Um, I experimented with with different shirts. Um, I did at one point wear like a sleeveless cutoff shirt to kind of show off the biceps there. And I was smithing. Mm-hmm. I, I eventually landed on a on a cool wool shirt that uh, I just rolled up the sleeves on. Tommy had the same wool shirt, so we. Um, it, it did really good kind of like his 
because the fair goes into the kind of the winter months mm-hmm. um, at Maryland. So eventually you just get really freaking cold. So uh, mm. that's kind of like the garb that I landed on. So boots with canvas kind of over the over the over them to kind of kind of disguise the fact that they're just modern boots. Uh, you know, cotton pants, something around my waist, which eventually uh, upgraded to a leather belt, like a really nice, beefy, big leather belt um, that uh, has like a little pouch. Uh, I didn't realize this was a big thing at the Ren Fair. People with like garbs, they have like tons of pouches on them. That's that's kind of the that's kind of the vibe. So I had a mm-hmm. sweet leather belt, uh, a wool shirt that was handmade from another uh, person from the fair. Mm-hmm. She she mm-hmm. makes uh, she makes wooden wool shirts um, on straight up on the um, oh, what's it called? What's that? Uh, what's that machine? Like a loom. Uh, like a loom, loom yeah, yeah, loom, like a loomed wool shirt. Cool. She made that for me. That's kind of what I landed on. So that was that was kind of the garb. And we, Tommy and I, just because of our work ethic and kind of what we're used to, we're just kind of used to suffering. We literally from <laughs> from nine, yeah, from 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 when the doors open, from because at the Maryland Ren Fair they do cannons. They do like a cannon to start off the fair. Oh, okay. So right from uh-huh. from from cannon to cannon, they do a cannon to close, open and close. Uh, we just pretty much were on our feet the whole time. We were interacting with people, uh, demoing things. We were just destroying, like like sweating our butts off, just destroying our shoulders, just hammering, hammering away. Because we we got that adrenaline kick from people talking to us, asking us questions, um, and just yeah, that was kind of it. We were just going at it. We made anything from small projects that we'd kind of like resembles things that we teach the kids how to make mm-hmm. to making knives. To then making kind of custom orders on the spot, I often would have people come up to me on the spot and commission something. Which, if if it's something that I could make within like a, I would try to judge my time, right? If, mm-hmm. it, if I could make it within kind of like a 20, 20 to thirty five minute window, I'd just do it on the spot. And the really big important thing was to also have a be be the hard thing for me was to try to be super charismatic and try to be super energetic. While I was also crafting things, like while I was also making things, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we really were putting on a show. That was the 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 goal that Tommy and I had was: can we put on a show? Can we demo? Because Tommy, I, I didn't know this. He told me this afterwards. Is that he? That's the way he presented the job to me. But the reason he presented it that way is because he got the booth under that condition that we mm. would give, that we would be demos, we would be loud, we would interact with the people in. Um, in placement of kind of some of the rent so he would get the mm. discount on his rent mm. yeah he get discount on his rent for the booth and, but in turn we have to be super loud super you know like we have to kind of eventually be part of the part of the cast right um right. so yeah so what did you feel like you or actually you know i i'm sorry i've been like prompting all these questions michael do you have any questions from any of that that you want to ask uh no i do have some questions but i think they're probably going to come up at the end okay. because they're a little summative sure. yeah yeah uh well i mean i guess mm-hmm. a question from that is that uh are you familiar david is the term playtron used all the time at the ren fair play playtron playtron like people who come so that's a word that gets used in the book to to discuss like people who come as like fans but like uh they're fully dressed up and in character and like doing the thing um, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it sounded like a distinction you just made was like between you as a craftsperson and the cast. So like, mm-hmm. what's the difference between that? Because you said like, eventually you kind of became part of the cast or felt like you were part of that. Tell, tell me about that and how you kind of interfaced with like the cast, quote unquote, and what does that mean? So most rent fairs, uh, have a storyline <clears throat> that they go through, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You can, for, for most rent fairs, um, which I can't. 
the, at least the ones I've been to, they, they have this. Mm-hmm. So at the Maryland Ren Fair, there's the king. Uh, so there is an actual cast. People audition to be part of the cast. So they have a, um, which I just pulled up the king currently at the Maryland Ren Fair. Um, so they, cause, cause at the Ren Fair, there, the storyline behind it is that there's a year, right? So for example, I pulled up the storyline for the Maryland Ren Fair kind of in preparation for this question. So, mm-hmm. uh, at the Maryland Ren Fair currently it is the year 1536, um, and King Henry, it's King Henry the eighth. That's who like the king of the Ren Fair is. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> at least at the Maryland Ren Fair. I'm not sure about other ones. So does it, it does kind it of revolves. Move, or, does it move forward every year? Or is it the same year every year? It moves, it moves, oh, okay. it moves forward. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And so we, and yeah, so then the, uh, the owners of the fair, they, they hire a cast to be, kind of be the ensemble around the king. So we would be during the weekend, we would, you know, Tommy and I are doing our thing. We're talking to the people, et cetera, et cetera. And then we would just see the king, King Henry walking around with his cast of people, uh, you know, around his entourage of people. There would be his wife, uh, the jester, the, the guards, mm-hmm. and you know, they, they'd be walking around and they'd be interacting with the patrons as well. And the big difference, though, is that me as a, you know, the booth vendors, like I mentioned, I wasn't told I, I had to dress up, but I wasn't told I had to like play the part. I didn't mm-hmm. have to mm-hmm. memorize any scripts, any anything like that. But those guys do. Yeah. So we were we were really good friends with the guy that was playing the jester. Um, and that dude during the weekend during the week he was the coolest dude ever. He was like tell us stories about going into Annapolis, all this that, having friends, blah blah, blah growing up. But then during that weekend, he was on. He was mm-hmm. not he was not that guy anymore. He was the jester. Like everything out of his mouth was completely scripted, was all this and all that, right? He would come up to me, he'd come up to us, you know, you know, hello fellow, you know, hello fellows. Like he just mm-hmm. and he'd be like, How how was the Smithies this morning? He'd uh you know, he'd know all the all the lingo. So right. those guys, the cast, they do have to do hundred percent um in character at all times. Mm-hmm. And so he's doing like a lot of improv and stuff like that and like He's coming to talk to you, but he's also like maybe performing for the people who are standing around you too, right? To like correct, get that interaction correct. going. Yes, uh, correct. Uh, the well, so a thing that's said in the book that I'm curious about is uh, they talk about the parties. Okay, are mm-hmm. there parties that happen after hours? Yeah, no, hundred percent. Are they like wild? Uh, or are they like a thing that's worth going for? We went to Tommy and I. We were invited to a couple of parties. The most of the parties, though, like the big ones, mm-hmm. we actually didn't get to go to. Were those were the cast? Mm. The the cast would. They're kind of like, um, what is it like? Um, end of the night kind of reprieve. They're 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 like, mm-hmm. let's let's let loose. Mm-hmm. That was them. Got the, it. Those were like mm-hmm. the Tommy and I never never got to go to those. We just never got invited to those, right? um tommy and i became really good friends Actors. yeah we never we never kind of invited to those but uh <laughs> we we became really good friends with this uh jewelry maker that was at the fair mm-hmm. and he had a really nice long-standing booth that he sold like really expensive jewelry and he would always invite us to um at the end of the fair he invited us to his booth and we'd drink scotch for hours <laughs> and he would have yeah and he'd have um um he'd have the the guys that would sing so oh so another another position at the mm-hmm. fair was like the bards right so mm-hmm. the guys that would hang up at the local taverns they would be the maryland rent fair has two big ones that i'm thinking about right now the the the, the white stag and the dragon's in i'm pretty sure i might be i might mis- be misremembering the dragons in one mm-hmm. but those were like the two big ones and they had a cast of like bards and singers that, that were there full-time singing mm. and so mm. 
those guys would go hang out with this with the jewel crafter and so they'd be singing all night they'd be doing they'd be they'd be doing more they'd be doing more singing and drinking scotch and drinking and uh that was pretty fun uh that was kind of the extent of my partying i, I can't really i uh, say that i ever got kind of wild or anything like that i mm-hmm. didn't really ever got i never got invited to those parties but they definitely were happening around me i definitely saw them for sure mm-hmm. yeah and I, and I guess the thing, uh, and you know, you don't have to, we don't have to use any names or anything like that. But I, I jokingly said earlier, you know, that that because of your cutoff shirt, you got a girlfriend out of the deal of the, the summer that you worked with. But you really did meet like your now long term partner at mm-hmm. at the Ren Fair, and she's one of the people who you know who also kind of gets that this kind of person gets mentioned in the book. It, she just did it on the weekend for fun, right? She worked at the at the fair for fun, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She worked for the food services, so she was, um, she was selling. She was working around like sell, selling like the food, so she'd be selling like the the turkey legs and the um, the the snow mm. cones and all this and all that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. she was <laughs> the classic Renaissance snow cones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Le- the lemon pies. The, yeah, the that's kind of funny. Uh, it, and she'd been doing that for a while, right? Yeah, I, I didn't realize this. Yeah, she told me she was been doing she was doing that for a while because the the apparently the food services was like a kind of a separate hiring agency right mm. so so if you were mm. to go to the maryland a main site and you were to you would you would apply you would eventually get to a part where if you wanted to say if you were interested in working for like the weekends like just the weekends and like do food services it would actually send you to like a to like their to their site to like right. their application process so uh yeah because the i'm not sure if other fairs do this but i know the maryland rent fair they their like main food services they kind of subcontract that out right like mm-hmm. it's like like mm-hmm. they they just they're they're there they have the facilities but they're not in charge of making the food so the guys making the food they're the ones that hire for the weekend positions and that that ranges from hiring local high schoolers right they just want to come out to the weekend and get a free ticket into the fair to then to then hiring people like 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 uh, like my girlfriend who you know are trying to you know you just do it later right mm-hmm. they're they're just uh there's, there's just something fun to do for the weekend. So. Yeah, like and, a, like an adult mm-hmm. woman who's interested in doing it for fun. Correct, correct. How yeah. did the two of you meet? Were you like you were just blacksmithing away, and she showed up? What happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, she was. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that she had kind of been um, kind of creeping on me. I, this, is, this is a story. This is a story I tell that I because I was just so focused on like just doing my thing, just just smithing and interacting with people. Um, so I was, I, I wasn't as, it, it was no, um, it was kind of part of my routine to like, oh, I see someone, you know, while watching me do my act for, mm-hmm. for, you know, for an extended period of time, I'll come up and ask, ask them their name, et cetera, et cetera. So I came up and I was started a conversation day one, right? Day two, she's back watching me again. And it's another extended period of time. Uh-oh. So I just kind of, I kind of just picked up on the vibe like, <laughs> oh, this, this, this girl's obviously here just to kind of watch me do, do the thing. Not, and here to watch me, not necessarily like watch Tommy or something. So, right. um, this was a very, <laughs> uh, you could probably edit this out or whatever, but Tommy and I definitely had our, our followers definitely had. No, some. I'm leaving that in. I'm not editing that out. You want, uh-huh. do you want to talk about that? Cause that's interesting, right? That like, mm-hmm. cause in the book they talk about, uh, you know, there being instances of like that there's a little bit kind of free sexuality, a little bit, the thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah. They tell the story about, I think in the, what, Michael, it's in the seventies when the, the roll in the hay with the lusty maid uh-huh. thing happens. Oh, right. Yeah. So it's Whoa. like an event. Presumably that doesn't exist at the one you went to where like, there are just women you could roll down a hill with. 
<laughs> no. Okay. Yeah, just just checking. I, I said in the episode we would ask, but so you know, there's this kind of like freer sexuality maybe that's going on with it, and so yeah. Well, tell me about it. Tell me about what it's like to like. Well, and, oh yeah, go ahead. Just Michael. to. Uh, yeah. lever in here like one of the points that's made uh is that at the ren fair women in particular often feel more empowered to be the sexual pursuers mm. rather than uh, uh you know the the passive objects of this sort of thing so just putting that yeah. out so there. Uh, how'd you feel to be like a like a hulking sex object how was that it was i mean it felt good not gonna lie it felt good sure. uh it, it was a good feeling uh-huh. yeah it was i was kind of surprised like it was um what would i say like like tommy and i just i I don't. I don't want to call them groupies. Um, that's that's right, a term right. that gets used a lot. People people call people call them groupies all the time. I don't right. want to call them groupies. They were definitely um, people uh, because it wasn't always it wasn't always girls. They <laughs> oh, just yeah. came up. They just came <laughs> up and would watch us for extended period of times. Make make moves at us. Make advancements at us. Tommy um, had so in comparison, you know, you kind of painted a picture of me. Mm-hmm. Um, Tommy. Well, I'm a Latino man. Tommy is. Um, a little bit taller than me, a little bit bulkier than me, a little bit more stouter. Um, but he is, you know, you know, long beard, long curly hair, and a white man, right? So yeah, he's like <clears> a <throat> white man, mountain man kind of thing. Yes, right. Yeah, hundred, hundred percent. So yeah, oh, yep. no, no, no. And that, yeah, just to give people like the image of it, right? You're like you're a Latino pirate. <laughs> yep, yep. In this imaginary, <laughs> he's like a mountain man pirate. Also, it sounds like correct. Yeah, <laughs> and so he had. So many followers. He had it. It was kind of wild. He they'd come up. They'd want to take pictures with him. They'd want to just everything, man. They want to take uh, pictures of him doing the thing. They they'd record him. They'd film him. Because uh, we we would just tell him, yeah, sure. You, like people would ask all the time, can we film you guys? Like yeah. And we also had this little um, book that we we put out, kind of where people could write, kind of like uh, you know like like thanks for visiting book, you know like oh, you know, people yeah, put yeah. out like mm-hmm. yeah we we would have one of those out and oftentimes. Um, we would just have like little love notes that people would leave us and stuff. And it was, it was you know, having that kind of admiration was kind of cool. I was like, Oh wow, sweet. Mm-hmm. Pe- people love us. People love us, Tommy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no. So, so that, that definitely was a bonus for sure. I, I, I didn't mind being the object of someone's kind of affection or, you know, lust, if you will. I, I didn't mind that. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we just have followers, 100. percent Yeah. Were they asking to like, uh, touch your muscles and stuff? Was it that kind of physical and explicit? no not our followers no no not really um it got i think getting selfies was probably that that was kind of their end there was one follower in particular i won't mention her name that um did make some pretty hard advancements towards tommy that every day she'd show up she would be like hey let's get my let's get my selfie for the weekend you know she'd she'd always come ungarbed up and she'd she'd come up and the selfies were literally like going into tommy's like chest and you know like like as close as she could and taking a selfie that was and uh that that was probably the the most i saw um someone kind of really make an advanced search tommy and eventually ended up asking tommy out huh right um i don't i don't know if he went on the date or not but yeah (laughs) she eventually she eventually did just like go pretty pretty hard right right and Mm -hmm. do you do you feel like that was like part of the job Mm. like that you that you gotta like entertain other people treating you like a sex object Mm, I don't know. Mm. Um, maybe, 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 maybe it was, maybe mm-hmm. in a way, because what what I realized that was happening to me, the, the what was happening to me, kind of even at a subconscious level, was that I could then kind of, at least that was kind of my in, right? If someone right. found me attractive, I never did it kind of on purpose, but I a lot of so so a scenario that would happen very often was obviously um, I, I I I fancy I would say that I have 
relatively good perception skills, right? I can kind of see if someone is into me or digging me, mm-hmm. um, at least at a very base level. So one of the things I learned to do, at least kind of subconsciously, was if I saw someone that was interested in me or who was interested in what I was doing, I would then quickly be like, hey, come check this out. Come check this other thing I made. So I would mm-hmm. I'd walk over to the booth to like our to our merchandise and be like, hey, look, this is something else that's very similar to what I made. Um, and oftentimes, uh, I sound like a scumbag, but oftentimes they would then buy the thing. Right? No, I think that's kind of what I'm asking because I do yeah. think it. Yeah. it's part uh-huh. of the job, right? Like I, I you yeah. know, certainly like the, you know, like the selling the other selling the turkey leg also has like a sexual element to it in some ways, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, wearing mm-hmm. the what, what is the what is the garb called, Michael? Like the the boob garb. Uh- Ooh, a oh, corset, like a corset, corset or a yeah, like, yeah. things like that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and you, our, know, our, you know, there's like that element there. And there, I mean, I'm not just bringing this up for random reasons. That's all throughout the book too. We didn't really talk about it in the episode, but you know, they mm-hmm. they talk about that. So I'm just curious. That's why I'm asking these questions about like, is that part of the job? That's that's what I'm asking you, and what the way you're asking you're answering it is kind of what I was curious about, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you can tell that someone's kind of into you, that is you're in. Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, and while, I, don't, I don't think it sounds scummy, really. I think it's part of the job, it seems like. Yeah. And I think while Tommy and I did it subconsciously, um, and then eventually kind of learned to do it, do it on purpose. Right. Um, other people, like you said it, you said it right. Um, other people did, like our sales girls, for example, like when we had, when we, our sales person, when they were girls, mm-hmm. when, when we would hire girls, they would do the, the corset and the cleavage, um, and they would do the whole, the whole bit. And then that's how that was there in to get, guys to come up to our or anyone to come up to our booth and buy our stuff so mm-hmm. yeah i think i i wonder that's an interesting question because now, now that i'm thinking about it that way i wonder if then like gender has a has a has a play obviously it does because mm-hmm. all the girls even if they were just there for the weekend to help that was their default garb right was their the the corset and the cleavage and the you know the, the makeup and very 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 flirty very very like um you know trying to you know trying to get you to look at them you know energy yeah. so and, and sure. that that you know that lines up with what the book is saying too that's that's partially mm-hmm. why why i'm asking um because yeah it seems like it, you know you, you haven't used this term right and it's not used in the book either but like there's like an emotional labor element to it right of like you have to perform the part but you have to perform the part of like being you as an erotic person all day too um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh there's a lot in the book about how that's like really positive in interesting ways but also it's like yeah you're on your feet for 14 hours or whatever doing it um mm-hmm. and like chatting people up and whatnot so that's that's pretty interesting mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah uh I, michael you said you had some like stuff to to i don't know I, I, what, what what are you interested in hearing about uh, so I'm actually interested in uh, actually trying to grasp a little bit beyond where the book goes, mm. uh, particularly because of where it ends. I don't remember if Cameron said this, but the book was published in 2012. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one thing uh, that it ends on uh, is just kind of like, uh, you know, we, uh, in, in a typical fashion for a book like this, you know, uh, wither the Ren fair of the future, like what is in store for us? Um, because it's 2012. It's like, hey, have you heard about this thing called the Internet? <laughs> Uh, there, there are folks, there are folks making Ren Fair groups on MySpace these days. Um, 
And so I was interested uh, in knowing a little bit more about, I mean, you've already mentioned actually some of this, right? Selfie culture has taken Mm off. Um, You know, so what are other ways that you kind of see like internet culture uh, inflecting or influencing uh, the fair? Obviously, you wouldn't have known much about this before, but just, you know, where, where is, uh, where is online particularly visible in the fair these days, if, if anywhere? Uh, I would say at least, at least the way I'm part of it is we have, I'm part of a, you know, like, Maryland, Maryland Ren Fair group that is like staff only, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's where we mm-hmm. can communicate to each other and say like, um, if if we if some if some booth had a you know a patron that was harassing them or something, then that person gets quickly, you know that that person is quickly known amongst the whole fair community. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, everyone, watch out for mm-hmm. this dude or watch out for this person. This person's doing this, whatever. Um, that was kind of my interaction with it. Uh, there was also like um <clears throat> like uh the internet groups for for patrons you know that would join um where they would kind of mm-hmm. get together and kind of uh choreograph or like you know plan their weekend at the fair uh, mm. my roommate at the time you know was was a big uh you know she loved to dress up she so she that's where she would use or she had her facebook groups and all this where she'd she'd roll up with a posse of friends you know that they would mm-hmm. they would all um, coordinate how their outing was going to be and what they were going to do. Um, another cool thing, I guess, in another another way that the internet has has helped is that now I think that booth owners, you know, the ones that aren't, you know, that are a little bit more in the know, right? They can start posting their merchandise online. They can start, mm-hmm. you know, kind of getting hi- people hyped for the the weekend and stuff. Uh, I know there was mm-hmm. a lot of there was a lot of booth owners that were kind of uh, a little bit more. I don't know. They just didn't really. It want to interact with that part of the internet. They want to interact with that side of it, and so they didn't have online stores. and And you could tell that you could definitely tell there's a difference in booth vendors that use the internet to hype their product up and to even sell online mm-hmm. than those that don't. Right? There was a, a heavy mm-hmm. complaint by the people that don't that the weekend was kind of their only time to make money, um, and they would kind of only run on commissions and would have no real way of like communicating other than like a phone number to whoever commissioned a piece for them or whatever uh so at, at least that was kind of for me i think i think that that's, that's that's the way i interacted with the internet the 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 maryland staff page is very very active i think they because <clears throat> the cool thing about that page is that it has you know like a lot of these staff guys that work for the fair a lot of uh, i guess people like me a lot of the performers they they do a tour right they don't just do maryland rent fair they do yeah. they they go to the mm-hmm, texas right. rent fair they go to louisiana um they're mm-hmm. at all these big fairs and they use this this group to communicate with each other like who's going here who's going this um who wants to who wants to carpool who wants to do this like you know um and then they also can vent you know it's also just kind of like a, a board where they all vent about kind of the experience and, and what what they do so mm-hmm hmm. Uh, uh, related to that, um, and you mentioned that there are some people who aren't as into, uh, you know, the internet aspect of it. Um, and this may or may not like break evenly along these lines, but uh, do you did you have any encounters with? Um, I don't know how to describe them, but like sort of like uh, uh, fair lifers. So in the book, one of the the, the book uh, covers a period of history from the original Ren Fair in like nineteen sixty 
uh, maybe 1960 itself, but the early 60s to the present day. And she talks about people who spend their entire lives uh, on this circuit, right, as uh, performers um, or as uh, uh, artisans and craftspeople. Um, and basically, this means you have a you know kind of built in population of folks who have really long uh, cultural memories of the fair and what it was and what it used to be and how it's changing and maybe it's changing for the worse and so on and so forth. So I just didn't know if you had um, maybe like are those folks still around? Are you running into people who have like these these old memories of how things used to be? And uh, 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 many of the times in the book, right, these are old hippies, but also <laughs> uh, very often like uh, uh, Vietnam veterans. Oh. Right. Um, so I uh, just wanted to any folks like that kind of like what's their vibe? What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. I can I can think of two people kind of off the top of my head that I met this way. Um, one was, uh, it's so, so, so funny you described it that way. So one was this dude, um, who was an old hippie, essentially he, <laughs> he, um, what he would do, oh gosh, I, I really wish I could remember his name cause I forget this dude's name. Um, but yeah, there was this one dude who was, was essentially a kind of, uh, perpetual fair attend, you know, worker, you know, he just worked at every fair you could naked name. Uh, during the weekend, he was a flower vendor. He'd walk around and sell, sell him flowers. <laughs> so he would, yeah. So I guess the way that works is that you have a booth um, that, you know, you like contract flower people, right? So mm-hmm. you buy you buy a bunch of flowers essentially, right? You buy them all for however much, like tw- twenty bucks worth of flowers, and then you sell them for like what five bucks a pop. So mm-hmm. um, that was his that was his role. But man, he was like so popular because during the week oh so example during the week when the fair wasn't happening he was always walking around to like all the booths um and he himself didn't have a booth he was he himself sold um he sold knives but he sold those um you know those knives that people play with and do tricks with um like a butterfly knife yeah yeah yeah. he'd walk around with a he had a suitcase full of butterfly knives and that was kind (laughs) of his that was his jam he would he would go around and sell butterfly knives um, and he'd play with it. He was like, he was um, just, he'd walk up to our booth all the time because cause we were blacksmiths. Right. He'd walk up to our booth and be like, yo, check out this sweet butterfly knife. Um, Tommy and I didn't really, weren't into butterfly knives like that, but, you know, we indulged them. We were like, oh, cool, man, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this dude, so he was a flower vendor on the weekend. That was kind of his job. He'd, he'd kind of grind it out and sell flowers. But then his real hustle was like selling butterfly knives at like <laughs> fairs and kind of wherever he, wherever he, uh, traveled so that's kind of your <laughs> that was like a prime example of your Renfair hippie um and that's like when i think about these people that just kind of like are lifers at the fair that's him it's just people that get by by like kind of doing like a minimum minimum kind of wage-esque job at the fair like selling flowers or probably selling drinks probably selling probably selling food but then use their time like during the week to kind of live at the fair kind of that's their excuse to be at the campgrounds and interact with the other vendors and kind of get to know them and and that's how their name gets around it's like that's how this person can afford to then go to the next fair and go to the next fair right they're just you know living in their car living in their van they're going on to the next one they're going on to the next one um but then yeah but then um but then like on the other side you have vendors who are very successful um there was this one nice lady pam who made these super elaborate dragons um, out of copper. She made like mm. copper dragons, Ooh. really sweet. And she had high dollar commissions. And she was just a retired, a retired um, lady in Florida. That's what she was just <laughs> in Florida. And and she would always just yeah, she just go to Florida, but she would come up to the Maryland Rent Fair and make a quick buck there, selling some really cool handmade things, and then just go back to Florida and, and uh, during the off season. So 
Yeah, it's definitely wild. Do you see see a little bit of both? Uh, and so just another question, again, kind of reaching a little bit beyond the book, because this is a thing I couldn't help but think about while reading the whole thing and thinking about as you're talking about these people whose livelihoods are constituted by being able to travel the circuit and go to fair to fair and like have these social connections and meet up with people in various places. Um, could not help but thinking like uh, uh the lockdown in 2020 must have been so devastating uh, for so many of these people. And I was just, uh, again, kind of curious about how uh, you saw uh, COVID impact uh, fares and kind of like how things are now, like in the aftermath of that initial lockdown. How, how are things going? And, and uh, you know, just just general thoughts based on your experience and what you've seen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was, oh man, that, we, we could talk a whole hour just on that question alone, but I, I will, I'll definitely, I'll definitely chop it down to kind of th- three points, I think. Well, uh, we've also got as much time as you want to have. So, so feel free. I'm, I'm trying to preserve your day. My day's already shot. <laughs> uh, no, it's cool. I'll, I'll just, I'll try to keep it short. I'll try to keep it sure. short. Cause, cause, um, so I'll, I'll try to stay stick with kind of like three, three kind of bullet points. Um, kind of the first one is how were their lives impacted? Like, so, that Facebook group I'm part in, like I mentioned, the with with the with the um, a lot of uh, uh, fair employees, that thing blew up. It was a lot of employees, um, a lot of vendors who were just now linking their GoFundMe pages to like pay bills. They were mm. just being like, "Hey, mm-hmm. I lost my booth here. I lost I lost this booth. I lost this fair. I lost this gig. This is what I need to. This is where the money comes from. This is how I how I sustain myself. Like I can't." Um, I'd imagine as in, you know, kind of, um, self-employed, a self-employee, right? A self-employed person, mm-hmm. you probably, I, I'm not really sure how the COVID relief works with that, right? I'm not sure if they had to, mm-hmm. which loops they'd mm-hmm. have to jump through. Mm-hmm. Um, but they definitely, a lot of them probably had to jump through more loops and probably had a harder time getting on some, some sort of aid. Um, so yes, COVID kind of devastated a lot of those traveling people because they, a lot of fares shut down. There mm-hmm. was um, a number of fairs that chose to not shut down, and they were, and that's kind of like leads into my second bullet point. Those were met with kind of a mixed, uh, mixed kind of attitude of like, "Sweet, I'm glad we're 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 working through it. We're gonna work at like half capacity." To to then some um, some some fair vendors and employees being like, "Why are you doing this? This is like this is terrible. Don't open, right? Like mm-hmm. for the love of God, don't open. This is, this is not." this is not healthy. This is not good for, for the world. And so it was a mixed bag of, it was, you could definitely see the divide of your, you know, people that were very concerned about the pandemic and people that were obviously not. And it was, and then mm-hmm. you saw that attitude even through the fair owners. So, um, the, the fair mm-hmm. owner at the Maryland mm-hmm. Ren fair, uh, Jules, Jules Smith, he chose to close, right? Mm-hmm. He experimented with both. He experimented with like, at first he was like, well, let's see what like the Maryland guidelines on whether or not we can open or maybe we can open at like a reduced capacity to then eventually uh, Maryland just was like, nope, actually, never mind. We're, everything's shutting down. We're not doing this. So then he had to shut down um, kind of very close to like kind of like when people start getting ready, right? Mm-hmm. People start getting ready um, kind of around like June, July. People are starting mm-hmm. to get gear up for So for people August. are already making kind of plans, assuming it was exactly. going ahead. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a lot mm-hmm. of people had to. Um, just stop like um, my so Tommy's wife um, she's also a performer at the at, at Ren Fairs she she's she walks around or she works a, in a musical group right that she um, she's very popular actually she but she goes to some of the bigger fairs 
and she on she made a Facebook post about literally the list of all the firsts she was attending, and she's like, all of these contracts have been canceled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, here's my here's all my. So I guess she's like, I guess we're not doing first season this year. Um, so yeah, no, a hundred percent. The pandemic de- definitely devastated that that lifestyle. Um, like I said, a lot of GoFundMe pages, a lot of people just asking if if anyone needed help with anything, if they can go stay at certain mm-hmm. places. Um, because I think their traveling plans were probably still the same, right? Like if mm-hmm. someone had someone was traveling to go to Maryland, well, that they still had to go to Maryland, right? So, um, so yeah, no, definitely, it definitely, definitely impacted it. Um, and I think the third one, which the third point that I kind of wanted to talk to which is the one that I think would take the longest, but then would probably require a little bit more more research, is, man, I saw, going back to this whole divide thing, mm-hmm. I saw very deep um, talks of, like, kind of, like, political talks and um, kind of, like, mm-hmm. fundamental talks of, like, or, or, or uh, values, I'm sorry, fundamental value talks mm-hmm. on the pandemic, on these forums, on these blogs. Like, people then ex- use those to express their feelings on COVID and, you know the conspiracies of it, mm-hmm. and or all this and all that, because a lot of these, um, and, and I, I, I don't want to paint this picture of them. Everyone, you know, but but yeah, you have a lot of these people that live this lifestyle, you know, not necessarily care about the pandemic, and and kind mm-hmm. of be more on the, they were more on the boat, which is kind of disheartening. To a lot of them were kind of more on the boat of like it's it's fake, right? It's not real, and right. um, where, but then mm-hmm. some of them were like, no, this is very real. Don't you know? Don't don't um, this is this is we need to do this, right? So. Um, and I'm actually curious now that I think about that thought, I'm curious to know, to wonder if like how many of those people that didn't believe in it w- cared more about like the fact that they needed to make money for the year. Right. right. Then, um, right. so, mm-hmm. cause mm-hmm. it was very much left up to the fair organizers. It was up to their, to, it was their call. Um, I feel like the Pennsylvania fair and the Texas fair are the ones that I heard of at the time that still opened at a reduced capacity they mm-hmm. they didn't i don't they didn't really care i think but it was also then i think it correlated with what what the states you know kind of mandates were to yeah. close or open so right. um those were kind of the big things that i noticed from from that era yeah well yeah so yeah the question i had like comes directly out of that which is that you so 2020 didn't happen and you went back mm-hmm. for 2021 and now you don't do it anymore correct so yeah why did you make the decision not to do it anymore would you go back if you if it were like you know a super sweet deal you know one last job one last <laughs> they keep pulling me back in <laughs> uh yeah so so i mean so the big thing is that i don't live in maryland anymore right yeah. um yeah oh well, so it's oh yeah, yeah, we, I, yeah you might want to say <laughs> that part i guess because you lived in the tents the first year and you didn't live in the tents anymore so maybe there's right. a, a gap you might want to explain there <laughs> right, right right so so back to my so so yeah so as you mentioned i met i met someone i met my uh my current partner at the fair um well that that 2018 year was also kind of like um a kind of like a year for me to um move out of move out of georgia and just 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 do it you know just go yeah. out and and live life so the after the 2018 um working at the fair i was invigorated i was just like all right let's do this let's live life and um you know, uh, my girlfriend, my girlfriend, I, I was like, you know, we started dating <laughs> she, during she's the fair. Girlfriend. Yeah. She's still my girlfriend. We started <laughs> dating at the fair. And then afterwards I was like, you know, she, she's from, she was in Baltimore. She lived in Baltimore. So I was like, Hey, what if I just hang around in Baltimore for a little while? Um, and it was, it was kind of like a, you know, I, I didn't, it was like, not like a, no pressure or anything. I just hey, wanted what if to I then, moved in with you. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, and, uh, 
and we didn't move in right away but yeah, it, yeah. together right away but uh so i did just move to baltimore after that essentially like the having that relationship was just kind of like an incentive to stay in baltimore and see what's up but it was also just like a hey let's kind of move on to the next stage of my life and see what baltimore has to offer what just what somewhere else other than georgia has to offer for me right mm-hmm. um which then that's why so that's how i was able to do the fair the following years was that i was in baltimore i was in baltimore and i was just in the area so tommy could rely on me to to come to work at the fair every year um from the our first kind of initial agreement with tommy and i he just needed help running the booth it was his first year running the booth too Mm -hmm. so while he was while he was while he knew the fair he knew the kind of the game he knew the community he didn't really know it from being a booth owner right so um Mm -hmm. i guess i got i got to really be there with tommy from from the very first year that he got to run it so he kind of depends on me as kind of like a second in command when he's not around and they're like hey man like you know like there was moments where he could leave the booth right and because i'm there he feels good about it he feels like he could leave it and go do something else yeah um so that's that's definitely um it's a cool feeling and the reason i decided not to do it is because i moved away from maryland and so i live in north carolina now and i told tommy um, hey man, it's just it's very unrealistic with my job now, with my full time job, to be able to take you know ten weeks off just to go do the fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's kind of it. it's kind of a, a anticlimactic kind of boring boring story. I didn't. <laughs> uh, I w- I would definitely do it again, right? If if I could somehow manage to get ten weeks off, right? If I could somehow yeah. manage to get the, those weekends off and make it work, I would. Um, but the kind of my situation has changed, whereas um, Tommy's hasn't, right? So Tommy, uh, I mentioned his wife is a, a performer at fairs, so she goes around and has multiple contracts all around the country. Um, Tommy has kind of piggybacked on her career in doing that, mm-hmm. so now he has like a mobile forge and mobile kind of setup that he will then follow her around and has been fortunate enough to get into the same fairs that she performs at, mm-hmm. so has been able to be kind of like a pop-up blacksmith at these fairs and kind of work alongside with her. And mm-hmm. that's the, that's the life that he has built from the very beginning, right? He always, he always wanted to do that. So, um, Tommy can kind of, ha- he, he can afford to do that. So he, mm-hmm. he works, he's now become the traveling blacksmith, the travel, the traveling fair guy. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I've met Tommy before. He definitely sees himself as an artisan. You know, he is, right. he is a craftsperson for sure. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's from straight from chapter two of the book, right? He, he's one yes. of those people, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll give you this book, David, next time I see you. Sure, sure. I'm sure. I, I think you'd find the, the history part interesting. All right. Well, Cole, is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to uh, you wanted to talk about or, or wish that we had asked you? Uh, nothing comes to mind. I think uh, I think Renaissance festivals are are a cool cool thing. I think if you can go, go for it. A little, little plug there. A little plug at the end. <laughs> is Maryland the best one? Is that the one that people should go to? I think it is. If you're on the East Coast, I think definitely, right? I think if you're, if you can, oh, if you get a chance oh, to go, shots fired. I think you can go. I think you can go to Maryland Run for yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's it uh, it has um, it's every weekend is just so cool because they have different themes for every weekend as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so like while like you have like your normal cast that's always doing their thing, you know, King Henry doing his thing. Mm-hmm. You also have like Pirate Weekend or um, mm-hmm. like weird like a like a like Cowboy Weekend. You have like just random weekends where people can go in and do different garbs and do different kind of um cowboy no, weekend right they just do all this cool stuff man it's <laughs> so it's pretty sweet yeah uh 
uh, the, the reason Michael was saying that is in the book, it's pretty clear that there's like a rivalry between East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest. Like they're all different. And yeah. like they, they work differently. And and so that, that's why shots fired. And from, from my understanding, they, they all kind of splintered off from the same owners, right? From like the same mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I knew you were, well, I knew we were talking about fairs. So I just did very quick little Googling and um, even about the Maryland run fairs kind of stuff. So I didn't know. And I didn't realize that the Maryland run fair was kind of like a splintered off of owners starting from like the Minnesota run fair, apparently, I think, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of like what people that left that like started. One of them was Maryland run fair. And I think one of them had to do with like Tennessee, the Texas one, I think. Um, yeah yeah basically the the history there is like the ones on the west coast started and then people who were involved in all of those in some way moved to kind of it kind of moved its way east it seems like you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so like piece by piece as people learned how to do it they did it a year or two and then they would go a little bit further east and do it so Mm -hmm. pretty quickly by like the mid 70s it seems like you know they were they were everywhere all around the country i would i would say this um the kind of kind of the last one one thing I'll say here at the end is I really sure. would like an opportunity to go to the Texas one. They, mm-hmm. um, as much as like people talk about the Maryland one, I think another fair that I've heard people talk just as much is the Texas one. Mm-hmm. Um, they the, the the TRF, if you will, you know, there's um, it seems that at least from the vibe that I got, that a lot of the reason why vendors like to come to the uh, Maryland rent fair is because there's money there, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, money flow coming in from dc people that come in a lot of young professionals that come up from um from that area and also and also baltimore and like also new york you have a lot of people coming down from new york down mm-hmm. to come to the maryland ren fair so there's a lot of just money gonna go in and that's kind of like the vibe that i got from the maryland fair is that there's just a lot of a lot of money to be made there whilst like at the texas renaissance festival i got the vibe that people just go there to have fun people go there to get mm. wild um so i would i would i'm curious i would like to go to the texas run fair someday just to see kind of what the what the vibe is um okay just, well, we're going to summer we'll go let's go let's go we'll go I, this I'm, summer and we'll make uh range touch content there let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> all right cool well thanks for coming on the show david thanks for doing it i'll send this to you when we are done uh or you know when it's out and uh i don't know maybe you i yeah we'll figure out if there's like a link for people to buy stuff or something. Oh, sure. We'll we'll, we'll figure it out. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for coming on, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks.